Nobody puts baby in a corner. You talking to me? You talking to me? To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> this is God. I told you I was hot tonight. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. You just put the law in my hands, and I'm going to break your heart with it. What kind of beer? Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? What? Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. Hello, and welcome back to Movies for Life. Uh, my name is Brian Kuyper. And I am Michelle Egan. Today is a very special episode. We've decided... Super special. Yeah. We've decided that every fifth episode, we will pick two of our forever favorites from our first episode yes. and pair them together into an appropriate double feature, sort of. <laughs> it's something like that. As best they can go together with yeah. what we picked. Yeah. And actually, I think all of them are they do. pretty weird, kind right? of kind of weirdly good pairings. So the first one that we are pairing, they both happen to be Martin Scorsese films. Yeah. So, uh, wow. So this is a big one. This is a big one. Us. This is a really big one. We love Scorsese. Yes, we do. And I can safely say, um, and it's hard to choose because there are so many great filmmakers, but I think I would call Martin Scorsese my favorite filmmaker. Yeah, I do too. And you do too. I call him my dad and like just in joking ways, but it's really because like he he makes some of my favorite stuff and I I just love who he is and what he does. So he's my cinematic father figure. Yeah, and you know, I've seen all of his narrative features except for one. I have not yet seen Silence. I have it on I my it. I have it on my shelf, and I, I plan on watching it soon. But I planned on watching it soon a year ago. Uh, so, and I haven't seen all of this. I'm like the worst daughter. There's like a handful that I still haven't seen. Just kind of is more the stuff I wasn't really sure that I was gonna like, but mm -hmm. I got into. The, I'm getting into them now. I added them all to my Netflix queue. They're on my on my way. I'm gonna I'm gonna finally see them all. Well, there you go. I mean, there are so many great films in this filmography. But which two are we talking about today? We are talking about, uh, for me, we have an early film in the film, well, fairly early film in the filmography, uh, which is probably his first true masterpiece, and that is Taxi Driver from 1976. Yeah, and then for me, we have uh, 1995's Casino casino now this is one of the things that is weird to me you know you've said i mean on my end i understand why casino is your favorite because it's a really fucking fun movie right yeah you know it's got a lot of i mean it's got some brutal stuff in there but yeah it has got lights and i hate to use this word but pizzazz you know it's got it's got it it's got something that is just fun about it and in all honesty i have no idea why taxi driver let's say taxi driver has no fun in it like almost yeah there's no at all. no pizzazz it's dark the the movie essentially feels like it takes place in hell okay mm -hmm. why taxi driver uh is the one i chose as a forever favorite is hard to explain but 
hopefully I can a little bit. But uh, before we get into that, how did you come to love Scorsese as a filmmaker? Um, I think I saw him, I saw a lot of his stuff when I was pretty young. I remember seeing The Godfather um, at a pretty young age, I think, because of my dad, my real dad. <laughs> he was into, like, gangster stuff, of course, and so I watched it, and um, I, I got into that kind of stuff. And so that led me to, you know, Goodfellas, probably the best gangster film, I think a lot I would of people agree. say that. Best mafia mob movie. I actually so, would agree yeah. with that. I actually prefer it to The Godfather. And yeah, I love people say that. Yeah. The Godfather. So Yeah, so that led me to Goodfellas and Casino. And also at the same time in my life, uh, again when I was pretty young, like probably 13, 13, 14, I was really getting into true crime stuff. And both Goodfellas and Casino are based off of true stories and both books by the same guy, Nicholas uh, Pelagy. So I read both of those and just kind of kept going from there. So I knew Scorsese's name, mm-hmm. obviously, from that. And it's actually only in the last few years that I've, I've really got into a lot more of his other stuff that I hadn't um, seen before, specifically like King Comedy and After Hours. Um, I just saw The Age of Innocence for the first time like a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was one I hadn't gotten to yet. And just seeing even more stuff from him made me fall in love with him even more. He often gets pigeonholed as a crime right. director. And he is capable of doing just about anything. Um, I think that, you know, his, quote, children's film, Hugo, is rather brilliant. Hugo. I think Hugo's <laughs> wonderful. And then you have, you know, the, the sort of, the movies that are sort of the gritty night street movies like Taxi Driver, like Bringing Which Out admittedly is like my favorite stuff from him, but that's just my, my taste. Yeah. And, you know, and, 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 you know, Bringing Out the Dead is another I love bringing up the dead. Yeah, this kind of film that's very it's very dirty, gritty movie. Then you have you know the the crime movies and the lifestyle crime movies like uh, Goodfellas and uh, Mean Streets, Casino, Wolf of Wall Street, and then to some extent the Irishman. The Irishman's a little bit different in tone. It it doesn't have the the lifestyle glitz tone that it's mostly a drama. Yeah, it's but it still feels like a bookend. A, a f- sort of a final act to this sort of series of films that started very early with him with Bean Streets, uh, was carried on with Goodfellas into Casino, and then Irishman as sort of this this yep. closure to that in a way. Um, even though they're different stories about different situ- different people, yeah, different yeah. people. It feels like a continuation of the same yeah, people. Yeah, it feels it feels like a tetralogy, and it's helpful, you know, that you know De Niro is all in all four of those tetralogy good word yeah i prefer that to i prefer tetralogy to quadrilogy uh quadrilogy <laughs> is a made-up word that was put on the yes. cover of that alien uh of that alien set which is amazing exactly but exactly quadrilogy is not a word folks just got to put that out there uh <laughs> anyway okay, what about you what's your uh background with my background with scorsese i do believe that and strangely enough, I, I was introduced to Scorsese through uh, watching Siskel and Ebert as a kid because I had heard the name floating around, but I didn't really know what it was. Then they praised Goodfellas as the masterpiece of 1990, which it is. To me, not only is Goodfellas the best film of that year, it may be the best film of the whole decade. And that's saying something. 
That's saying something. I'm starting it already against you. I know, I because because Casino is in that same year. But Casino's in the same but, decade. But think about think about the the films that came out in the '90s I mean, that that were earth shaking. Of course, Pulp Fiction being sort of a prime example of '90s cinema that just sort of changed everything um, on the popcorn front. You had things like Jurassic Park, and um, but then you have you know Altman doing some of his finest films i adore shortcuts and uh the play just watch that yeah and i'm curious side note what'd you think of it i liked it a lot uh, it's a it was wonderful. a lot i actually got through the whole three hours yeah it's a it's a <laughs> anyone watch it's a challenging movie but boy is it good mm-hmm. um anyway it's a lot more serious than i thought it was gonna be but yeah i really liked it oh it's it's wonderful maybe one of these days we'll get to get to be able to get to some altman so I so it was Goodfellas, and then I then Cape Fear was like this big hit, which was sort of unusual in Scorsese's filmography for him to have hits at that time, because he was he was considered sort of an indie guy, sort of an art house guy. He was he was the kind he was the guy that put out the prestige pictures, and the people that made all the money were your Spielbergs and and George Lucases and people like that. Now, strangely enough, Scorsese has sort of become, you know, that big, became sort of that big box office guy for a little while, uh, which was really yep. cool and rewarding to see um, in his later period that we're still in. I mean, it's, we're still, he still has more in him. I know he does. Um, yes, he does. And so that was my introduction with seeing Goodfellas and Cape Fear, pretty young. Um, but I didn't see a lot of his work again until I was in college and one of the first that i saw in college as sort of a serious or trying to become a more serious cinephile if you will was taxi driver and when i first saw it i gotta admit i didn't really understand what i was watching i i couldn't relate to any of these characters in in a really direct way but there was something about it that i found very compelling that i couldn't put my finger on for a really long time so, I mean, maybe that's as good of a segue as any to just start toxic <laughs> talking about Taxi Driver. Even though we've already kind of talked about both of these movies before. Oh, whatever <laughs> do you mean, Michelle? What do I mean by that? Yeah, maybe we should talk about that real quick. Shall we pull back the curtain? We had planned to record this episode a couple of days ago, but I was, I chickened out because I felt so unprepared to tackle... Scorsese and these two big movies Casino honestly like one of my favorite things ever I could but I still didn't feel prepared to talk about them like you always want to come into a situation like this with like you know all these knowledge and all this these facts and ideas about the movie and so I wanted to like watch all of this stuff and do all this research but kind of just in chatting about it and our our feelings we realize that that's not really what we're, we're doing here. We're going, we are going off of our feelings from the movie more than just anything that, that you can just Google. Yeah. I mean, so there's obviously going to be some of that in this, right. you know, but most of what we are going to be doing on this show is not going to be so much, you know, the kind of thing that you can, and you can find great shows that do go into, you know, behind the scenes stuff and, that's not going to be our focus. So um, my first experience with Taxi Driver was I don't get this movie. I'm curious. What, How old were you when you I, first saw it? Well, the, here's the thing. I must have been, I was probably 20, 21, 
um, which is interesting because that's sort of a target. Kind of close in age. Yeah, it's sort of a target to age <laughs> to to being able to relate to a movie like this. And, you know, in all honesty, I don't think I really did relate to this movie until after college. You know, when I was living on my own and wasn't living in a dorm setting where there were people all around, you sort of start having to fend for yourself in the world a little bit. Yeah. That's where I started to realize why I was connecting with the movie. You know, I've never had a desire to go and shoot up. Kill people? No, I, I really <laughs> don't. I really don't. I'm, I'm, it's, it's just not my thing. Uh, so, uh, but I do get the sense of the outsider, the sense of the you know, alienation, the sense of being surrounded by many, many people and just being... Not on, being able to relate to them? Yeah, not being able to relate to them, being on the outside looking in. You know, I think back to that, you know, this actually maybe connects more with me as as a junior high or elementary school student, but I was not going to be watching Taxi Driver at that time. <laughs> you know, first of all, I don't think I would have understood what I was seeing, but, you know, I was looking back on that time, I think there was sort of this element of, of getting the character of Travis a little bit more um, during those years, because, you know, I was very much you know i would i would wander around during recess i would just walk around the track by myself because no one wanted to hang out with me you know i mean <laughs> which is that's not that's not a trying try to gain gain some sort of weird sympathy or anything like that but that's just reality and it was looking back i think i relate to more than i did at the time uh though um when i started to realize that's what the story was about. That's when I was connecting with it more, which was after a few viewings. I mean, it wasn't like the first or second time that I saw it that I just, oh, I get it. You know, it took it took some time for me to really dig into my psyche a little bit to understand why I found this film compelling. I sort of feel the same way. Like, yeah. um, I definitely relate to this one a lot more on this viewing because not just because of what's going on in the world now when we're mostly alone, not really supposed to go out and do anything. And that's kind of actually been my life for the last few years. Mm. Don't really go out and see people except my family sometimes. And when I go to work and the first time I saw this, I, I think I was probably in, in college too. I can't remember specifically. I'm not a person that has that kind of memory of when right. I first saw a movie, but it was probably late high school, college um, when I saw it. And I don't think I have watched it Again, I think when I bought it a few years ago is probably the second time in my life I've ever seen it. And then the third time was a few days ago. Sure. But this time definitely, definitely hit me a little bit harder than those, than I remember those first few times. Yeah. Because I felt the loneliness. Yeah. And that's really what the film is. Paul Schrader wrote this. He came upon the metaphor of the taxi and he thought of it as sort of this metal coffin <laughs> driving through the streets and the driver being essentially a, a dead person, <laughs> you know? Uh, the, you can see that yeah. in, like, the opening shots just yes. of the movie, of just the cab coming through all this smoky yes. street with the lights and everything. It totally looks like that. Yeah, and, you know... You can the, see where that image came from. That steam rising up through the vents and, and the light being so orange and red and all these things. For me, it sets up this movie as 
taking place, like I said, taking place in hell. I saw it in one shot there's like um there's like a red and blue kind of on either side of the screen, which kind of made me think of like police lights. So it was yeah. like, uh, looks like a crime scene. So it looks like, like the city is itself is just one big crime scene. At least that's how Travis sees it. That is. As yeah. we come to learn later on. Yeah. And, you know, something I never really thought about before is, is just the constant references to water. Because he's, it's the streets are always wet. There's always mm-hmm. steam. There's the fire hydrants that are being sprayed. And you know, he he comments about a real rain is going to come and, yeah, and 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 wash wash all clean. the scum off the street. Yeah, you know, and and he seems to have it. This is him beginning to have this delusion that he is some sort of avenging angel that is going to be the one to do that. You know, that's the, it's a it's a sickened mind that is thinking this, yeah. of course. And that's one of the things that I find interesting about this movie is that that some movies like this don't get very right. We are never asked to like Travis. We are asked to try to understand his motivations, maybe how he got to where yeah. he does by the end. Exactly, and not, and but not so much in order to sympathize with him. And this this often happens. You know, Scorsese. You know, when we're talking about Casino and Goodfellas, uh, Goodfellas. Should, honestly, that should be my forever favorite. I've, I've probably seen that one more, but but this is the one. Something about this movie. Yeah, I think what you're talking about though is a big thing with with this movie and actually with Casino later on is something that Scorsese puts in a lot of his movies that. A portrayal of bad behavior is not an endorsement of that behavior. Right. And it's definitely not supposed to be in this movie. No, I mean, I think he's always clearly shows the fall. He always clearly shows the downfall. And he's always, in a way, more interested in the downfall. That goes back to old traditions of gangster films and crime films, you know, like the the public enemy uh, from the from the early 30s or little caesar you know his quote with this was you know they would always be about the rise and fall the fall was always better but i mean that's that's a different kind of movie than taxi driver um but one of the things with this is is it's also sort of a time capsule of what new york was like in the late yeah. 70s uh which is you know it's a world that doesn't exist anymore and it's something that was, was captured, you know, by movies like Maniac and, and things like that as well. Just that dirty, mm-hmm. full of crime and sex shops yeah. in New York that I kind of wish I could see. But it'd, be, it'd be a sight. In a way. Well, what's funny, what's funny for sure. is in the midst of all, what I kind of love this. And it's something I noticed the first time I watched it, even was in the midst of all these porto shops and theaters and stuff, there's a marquee for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a massacre. And yeah. it's just like, which had, you know, come out um, in 1974s. They were probably filming this in 75. So it would have been just a marquee they caught on screen. Yeah. So it's funny, though, because to think of a movie like Texas Chainsaw, you know, as being that level of filth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to, to you know that that it's in the same it neighborhood it kinda, <laughs> I kind of love that you know so there there are a couple of, of interesting things you know his just Travis's interactions with people his inability to interact in a normal way is clear from the beginning you know one of the uh, sequences we talked about the other day was where he goes in and he's 
to the porno theater and he's going to um, when he's by himself. Yeah, when he's by himself and he's gonna yeah. buy he's gonna buy some food, you know, and he just sort of he keeps trying to hit yeah. on the lady in the counter, which is wrong time, wrong and, and place. The, buddy. And the thing is, it's almost like is he trying to hit on her or is he just trying to have some sort of human interaction? And he just doesn't know how to do it without hitting on her. He is being. I think he is being nice. He's also being a little bit invasive, considering. Oh yeah, he's definitely being invasive. the place. Yeah, because and he and he gets annoyed when like she doesn't give anything back to him, but mm-hmm. he just doesn't get. It's like okay, think about where you are, buddy, and think about exactly. the kind of guys that she sees come in there probably every day. How does she know that you're not one of them? She doesn't. She you can't know, trust you because the same interaction in a different setting is not threatening in the same exactly. way. Yeah, and but. But the fact is, like, I mean, come on, dude. Just pay attention to where you're, where you are, man. And um, a, she doesn't owe you her time. No, a, you're in a porn theater. Come on. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's like, which no kink shaming. I'm sure those were awesome to go to. I would actually, <laughs> I wouldn't mind going to see a movie in a porn theater. That'd ah, be so weird. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, it, <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at the same time, he's like, yeah, wrong, wrong place to, to have this particular conversation, yes. you know. But yeah, you definitely see how awkward he is with people, and it's just, it's kind of sad when you think about it too. Is that he's? They say in the beginning of the movie, he's only 26. Yeah, that's right. Um, just like at the same time, he's, he's obviously had a, a lot of experiences, even at a young age, that mm-hmm. maybe attributed to the way he acts now. Yeah, something the way he thinks and feels. Something that sort of gets. That's really important to the film, but it's mostly subtext, uh, is the fact that he's a veteran. He's a Vietnam vet- veteran. Yeah. Um, so we've, we see he's wearing his jacket, you know, uh, through the whole movie. The army jacket. The army jacket. The Marines. Because uh, he's in the Marines. Uh, had an honorable discharge. Okay, come on. <laughs> but he was... <laughs> he, he was... Um, he was honorably discharged, so he apparently had... Uh, his service was exceptional, at least in some on some level. But he's also likely in a war halfway across the world where, at a time in his life where he would be learning sort of normal interactions, particularly with women, and he's not having those where he's at. And he gets... And yeah, he, in your early 20s, that's when you learn social skills mostly and to be yeah. with people and to... Start relationships. Yeah. He never had that. Yeah, and so there's certainly a, a, a comment on sort of the weariness that people were feeling about about the war, which, you know, in 1976 had officially ended. But at that time, you had many veterans returning and just trying to learn how to... And, you know, this is something with any war, but Vietnam was a situation where where the soldiers came home and, and were not particularly welcomed back easily um and so you ended up with a lot of homelessness you ended up with a lot of difficulty more difficulty adjusting um though ptsd ptsd um which obviously is a very real thing and uh, in any well in many situations but certainly in war that's that's sort of a key element of the movie that's just sort of in the background all the time but not never in your face in this movie. Um, so it's it's not trying to make necessarily a statement about the war, a direct yeah. statement about the war, like coming home or something like that does, uh, or the deer hunter. But mm-hmm. it's 
it's still saying something about it all. And I always found that interesting. So it's definitely a part of Travis's character that needs to be taken into account, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And understanding him. When otherwise it's feels like sometimes in this movie it's really hard to understand him, you know? It is. Because he just goes extremes. Well, and the thing is, and that's a that's a key element. I mean, what um, Betsy brings up, Sybil Shepherd. Oh my gosh, so mm-hmm. gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, when she appears in that white dress, I mean, in slow motion, it's like looking like an angel. Angel says, in, in a in a white dress, exactly. Yes. And you also have uh, a little. How much more on the nose can you get? I know, <laughs> I know. You have a little Martin Scorsese, <laughs> but I love it. No, I, but I love it. And in that scene, you've got a you've got Marty watching her go by. You have Mr. Scorsese watching that huge black that beard, beard like <laughs> so much hair. I love it. Yeah, 1970s Marty was uh, was. I love 19. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Anyway, um, so uh, we meet Betsy, and she uh, she discusses that. She talks about his contradictions. Mm-hmm. She brings up that song, and I, I actually looked up the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said you were going to look up some more about that song. We'll yeah. So this song is called "The Pilgrim," Chapter 33, by Chris Christopherson. So she quotes from the chorus. But uh, this is, I'll just give a taste of what, of some of the lyrics here. Uh, See him wasted on the sidewalk in his jacket and his jeans. (laughs) It almost sounds like, oh, you know, it's one of those things where Paul Schrader had been listening to this song and going, "Eh, there's, I'm forming this character, you know, this song is helping me form that character. Uh, Wearing yesterday's misfortunes like a smile. Once he had a future full of money, love, and dreams which he spent like they was going out of style. And he keeps right on changing, for better or worse, searching for a shrine he's never found, never knowing if believing is a blessing or a curse, or if the going up was worth the coming down. Okay, so here is the chorus, which is what Betsy quotes during the movie, in a little bit different order than, than it actually is in the song. So he's a poet, he's a picker, He's a prophet. He's a pusher. He's a pilgrim and a preacher and a problem when he's stoned. He's <laughs> he's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction, taking every wrong direction on his lonely way back home. That's him. Right yes. Wow. So, I mean, this is Travis Bickle in song form. And the, what's interesting is, and I wrote a note down here. Uh, let me find it real quick. This is actually a song um, that was written about several of Chris Christopherson's friends. Uh, originally, uh, Chris Gentry, and then uh, some names that we're probably more familiar with, uh, including Dennis Hopper and Johnny Cash. And so, which I get, you know, the whole prophet and a pusher, you know, partly truth, yeah. partly fiction thing with when you're talking Johnny Cash, because uh, that was that was the walking contradiction was. Johnny Cash in a nutshell, because I mean, <laughs> the guy uh, would sing his his songs were all God's guns and you know I can't remember <laughs> you know they were it was it was just uh, that sort of thing everything was sort of a he was sort of a priestly character almost uh, the man in black and then you know he would burn down a forest uh, you know. <laughs> Thing, all sorts of things. Johnny Cash was a was a pretty interesting guy. 
kind of a bit of a wild man. <laughs> so um, I I can see where he would have inspired a song like that. Certainly Dennis Hopper. Yeah. So and but you know I, I don't want to stray too far from Betsy without talking about uh, Albert Brooks too. But well, look, I have a question yeah, yeah, about Betsy too. Okay, so how do you think his first interaction with her? compares with his interaction with the, the lady at the porno theater. Oh. How do you think he has two different approaches there? Yeah. The first one, he's just like trying to be nice, asking her name. And then with Betsy, he really goes kind of creepy in a way, but also yeah. interesting. Like you're he kind of interested in this guy who would say something like this to her. Like you look like a lonely person. Exactly. I can you look see like you need a friend, and everything. I'll be a friend. He's like, I can, I, I can see beyond this. I, I love that that shot where he sort of waves his hand over her desk. It's yeah. almost, yeah. it's almost it's, awkward. It's almost, yeah. it's, 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 it's like it's very stylized. The way he's holding his hand, it's like he's rehearsed this because he's been watching her. He knows what everything in her office looks like, which yeah. is kind of creepy stalkery but the thing is she also saw him out there yeah so when he actually comes in i think she's like the thing is she is Mm stone-faced during that scene for the most part but she is clearly intrigued by this guy then what exactly do you want would you like to come have some coffee and pie with me why why yeah i'll tell you why i think you're a lonely person I drive by this place a lot. I see you here. I see a lot of people around you. And I see all these phones and all this stuff on your desk. That means nothing. And then when I came inside and I met you, I saw in your eyes and I saw the way you carried yourself that you're not a happy person. And I think you need something. And if you want to call it a friend, you can call it a friend. You're going to be my friend? Yeah. Um, which is... It's also... Again, it's that whole idea, this is a different setting. Yeah. You know, he comes in in his Absolutely. suit and tie. You know, he, he comes in, he dresses up to walk in and, and talk to her. You know, he's doing everything he can to impress her. And something, you know, intrigues her. Like maybe she feels that there's some truth in what she's saying. He's saying because I think he's also talking about himself in that scene too. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I like the scenes in the office though. In that, in <laughs> because I love Albert the, Brooks. Albert Brooks is so totally forgot he was in this movie. And the thing about him is, I mean, it's not it's not a hugely important role, but it does do something important. It really breaks the tension. It lightens. Yeah, because yeah, when it needs it. Because this movie, I mean, this is dark movie. I mean, without those scenes, I think it's maybe too dark. But there's some real humor in this movie. Uh, most of it is for man, most of it's yeah, Albert Brooks, Brooks like is kicking him out and he does his little like Grok! karate that, stance yeah. I, 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 I love that you know but I mean the, like he's going a little like nutso but yeah. it also looks, looks really funny it does it's hilarious <laughs> but you know um, I, I think Albert Brooks's little conversation is like we are the people it's not the same as we are the people let's not fight you know, I mean, it's, it's 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 mostly an improvised. It's mostly improvised stuff. You know, I want to know the trick with the matchbook. Can I know the trick with the. It's like, oh, I got my thumb back. Thank God. You know, they I, never reveal how no, how you can do it. No, no, it's like maybe mad. And I love those moments in um, 
they are. I, they, they, I guess they struck me more this time because, and I, and yeah. I felt how much more necessary they are than I, that I ever yeah. thought of it before. Um, and they're also really the only sequences. I mean, besides the one uh, between Sport and Iris later in the film, where Travis isn't like directly there. You know, he's not the center of of the scene in some way. Which you know, a little bit it's of been the whole movie in this character's head would have been a lot. It would have been. So yeah, going going outside and seeing that you know maybe there are actually good people in this city. Yeah. Like he, he keeps talking about how it's just full of. It's just a filthy mass full of bad people. I mean, yeah, there's people like Albert Brooks there. Yeah, and so it's 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 directly contradicting his inner monologue. Yes, which is important for us to see, I think, because the people that get in his taxi mostly are pretty terrible people. It seems like you know, it's like hey, you know, <laughs> I you know that that couple that I mean, not even talking about Marty yet. We'll get to <laughs> that, but that that seems rough. <laughs> But, 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 you know, it's like, Hey, there'll be extra big tip of this if you do the right things, you know, all that stuff, you know, it's just kind of, and you know, the, his coworkers or his coworkers, they're not, they're not that much better. No, but they're, they're kind of funny. They're, they're They're funny, you know, they're still not that much better. The kind of stories they tell. I know. I was like, you know, that they're lying. But the thing is, yeah, that's the thing with you're being still being a bit of a misogynistic prick here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Wizard is an asshole, but he's not dangerous necessarily. I mean, he's uh, he's just he's just yeah. talking, and you know, he's he's just all talking. Yeah, there's you know, I mean, he actually kind of gives Travis some advice that's like if he had Travis had followed it <laughs> or had yeah. been able to follow it, might have saved him from what happens later in the movie. You know. And another thing that, you know, when I first saw this, that completely puzzled me was, okay, during the scene in, in sort of the cab stand where the guys hang out, he puts the Alka-Seltzer in the, in, in the cup, and you just watch those bubbles fizz forever. I learned later that that's actually a reference to a couple of movies. Um, one of them's a Godard film. I, I can't remember which one, if I'm honest. The other one... Never seen a Godard film. But, but that one was... Oh, that's Okay. i've seen a couple um and i find a lot of godard a little bit pretentious okay i said it sorry so sorry to all the godard fans out there i loved weekend i think weekend is an amazing film it's horrifying but it's sort of amazing horrifying i like the sound yeah yeah it's cannibalism gotta love it oh sweet Uh, yeah oh there's yeah you, you got it I gotta watch some of these. So I, I, I actually, I actually, I actually really like that one. I, I really, weekend. It's it's hard to say that you like a movie like that, but I don't know. I kind of like, like Taxi Driver. I, I do like Taxi Driver. So, but anyway, it's also a reference to um, though both of those are a reference to this movie called Odd Man Out, which is you know linking back to our last episode uh, directed by Carol Reed who also directed The Third Man, where James Mason, you know, there's this beer spills on the table and he sees the faces of different people in, in, in the bubbles, like accusing him and talking him down and all these things. So the the bubbles in the glass, the in, in, in the Alka-Seltzer glass, it's like all those all those voices in his head. Really? Okay. Yeah, telling him that he's worthless or that he's... 
he'll never be worth anything or that you that's know better than how i thought all that stuff out there on the street is is the scum and again that water reference but what was your what was your thought on it i i just thought it was one of those shots you know because he suffers from insomnia yeah so that kind of makes you a little loopy unable to focus on things and when he just sits there and focuses on that alka-seltzer it just sort of felt like and he's he's sitting in a room like you know talking with mm-hmm. his, his co-workers at the diner and it just kind of felt like him focusing on that one thing was just him his disconnectedness from yeah from other people that's what i felt and it's in that scene oh, definitely that too though there's no doubt about it so um so the most pathetic scene in the movie <laughs> is when his, his his date with his date with uh, yes. with with uh, <laughs> okay. with Betsy. Oh my gosh! Now this is a, one of those scenes where where you're like uncomfortable for her while mm-hmm. you're watching it. So he takes her to a porno theater. Um, yes, which you know. There are other this is a and he's movie. like I, I I don't know much about movies. I, I see other couples here, you know, from time to time. Which you no, know, hey, that's your thing. At first, she seems but, kind of kind of into it, kind of like, oh, this could be like. A, she's like, this is a dirty movie. This is a dirty movie, but she kind of smiles. When yeah, she, she does. Says it. Like, she does. Like she's thinking this could be like a, an interesting time, at least as on a first date, mm. but. That's the thing. Yeah, it quickly realizes she's really uncomfortable. Date. Well, technically, it's a second date. They had coffee together. They had no. They had. I had a slice of apple pie with melted oh, yellow geez. cheese. Ew. What's so weird about that exchange? He's so focused on the details of what he had, what he was thinking. You know, in that monologue, in that sort of inner monologue he's having. It's like she she had, she had fruit. She could have had anything she wanted. It's sort of a narcissistic thing that he, you know, which is something that. Paul Schrader, in a in a late interview for I think the 40th anniversary, he seems to have like genuine disdain for for Travis Bickle. Oh yeah, in I in, do. in the interview, and you know, and it's like, well, good, you know, because he should. And and he says, you know, I I get it, but he says Travis's loneliness is entirely self-imposed. Yeah, it's an illusion. He he's totally brought it upon himself by uh, wanting things that he can't have and not wanting what he has and yeah. and it's it's almost like he knows he thinks you know he can't have good things so something in him will do horrible things to people without really even realizing that he's doing it mm-hmm. because like taking this girl to the porn theater and completely ruining his chances with her yeah on a first date i mean and and you know because because she clearly she quickly becomes very uncomfortable yes he doesn't even seem to notice that she's uncomfortable, and they go out on the street, and she she says, "This is a this is you might as well just say let's fuck." Yeah, you know, and and he's like, "It's like well, it's just a movie. I don't know." And you can you can definitely see her side of it, even yeah. though it does it does really seem like he's just clueless. Yeah, and is not good with dating or girls, but her reaction to that is completely valid. Absolutely. And he needs to learn that he, yes. <laughs> how to interact with people on this kind of socially acceptable level. And you know? he needs to learn other people's boundaries. Yes, exactly. But she doesn't seem to have really any concept of in the movie. Yeah. So her just like completely cutting him off after that, I don't think that was really mean of her. I think, yeah, like I said, that's, that's totally valid reaction. Yeah. And him just continually 
bothering her and she's yeah. not responding it's like take the fucking hint dude exactly learn exactly. a lesson and move on well and then there's that there's that scene that i mean this is this is one of those shots that's like this is bold where um travis is talking on the phone with her in the hallway and it just cuts and to the hallway just nothing there yeah. hands over to that empty hallway or dolly's over to that empty hallway and you just and and you just hear this pathetic conversation. Yeah. And it's the one side of this pathetic conversation. Oh my gosh. That that is I loved that shot. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the things that to me I mean, I think his first truly great film is Mean Streets, without a doubt. But to me this it's choices like that that make this his yeah. first real masterpiece. Real standout. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of shots like that in this yeah, absolutely. Another great hallway shot later on. Oh, yeah. The guy that comes out of the dark in the hallway. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> there's, there's so much in this. And so many. Yeah, and then the, the focus starts to shift to him essentially going crazy. I mean, he really, yeah. after after this, I mean, this is where we're getting into, he's he, there's, a, there's a brief moment where he encounters Iris, um, yes. Jodie Foster, uh, as a 12-year-old prostitute. There's something about her that it gets his attention. He, the twenty that gets that sport throws in her pimp sport, played by Harvey Keitel, um, throws him that twenty, and he the crumpled twenty just kind of holds on to it for a long time. For the whole movie. Yeah, uh, he he actually gives it to. Who does he give it to? For he gives oh. it to the 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 timekeeper, the the guy that's waiting outside her room uh, after they yes, after they right. have their after they're together, and um, and it's almost a warning. You know, I'm. I'll, I'll be back. Yeah. You know, it, but dur- this. And is... he sees her on the street. I think. Yes. Twice too. Yeah. Yeah. He sees her on the street and kind of follows her again. Creepy. Being creepy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, his transition into yeah, I'm just gonna go buy some guns now. Yeah. It's a lot faster than I well, remember. Like there. I think it's after he goes didn't back. Feel to the like there office. was a lot of buildup. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I see that, I see that. But when he goes back to the to Betsy's office to confront her, and he's scared, mm-hmm. you're you're in a hell and you're gonna die in a hell. Yeah, I mean, it's like completely the opposite of the way he was behaving when he first encountered her. It's frightening. Again, I think he's talking about himself. Yeah, he tries to he tries to karate, <laughs> do his karate moves on Albert Brooks, and uh, it's kind of <laughs> hilarious in a weird way and. And then the diary entry that you know his his diary entries are sort of yeah. done as a as a voiceover. Um, it says she's just like the others, cold and distant. Women for sure. They're like a union. That's his okay, line. Sure. And it's just like, have you ever thought <laughs> that the the common factor in all these relationships and all these shutdowns and all these situations? Is you? Is you? <laughs> <laughs> and not and not them. And not women. Yeah. yeah. But here's the thing: we then have the scene that I think plants the biggest seed, and that and, and it's the sequence with the passenger, played by Martin Scorsese, dad, who gets in the back dad, of his dad. cab. Oh god! Um, and it is. And, and, I and, there, and there's totally forgotten about this. Scene. And there's another thing like, right after this. A horrified. De- there's another detail right after it that I that I want to bring up too. But Martin Scorsese plays a plays a guy who gets in the back of his cab and says, "All right, pull over here." He happens to be spying on his wife who is having an affair with I'm not going to say the word, 
um, but with an African-American man, and he does not approve, let's put it that way, uh, I think it makes it worse for him that he's that he's a black man, which is part of the part of the undercurrent of this film as well, that Travis is racist. It's not as overt as it was in the script originally, but it's it's present. It's present. He he looks with absolute disdain, particularly at African American men in this movie. There's a moment where where a guy just walks by it and the look on his face is like he's gonna go hit it. Um for no reason. Uh, whatsoever and it's and there's the robber at the, uh, the yeah. convenience store yeah yeah he also has a co-worker charlie t who is a uh, african-american man who fellow cab driver but anyway the passenger puts the idea in his head of what uh, 44 magnum will do to a woman and, mm-hmm. and to her what various <laughs> parts of her anatomy um yeah. Yeah, so including her face, um, but also not her face. Uh, so also anyway, also another place. Yeah, uh, it is to me as sick as it all is. It's like it's like you, you think I'm sick, don't you? You think I'm re- you must think I'm really sick. Uh, don't don't answer that. Yeah. You don't have to answer that. It's like it's so disturbing, but at the same time, as sick as everything he says is, I don't think he actually means it. He doesn't mean it. Yeah. It's a fantasy to him. It's, it's, it's like like we were talking about, it's a 12 Angry Men thing. Yeah. You, know, you don't actually mean it when you say, I'm going to kill you. Right. I mean, is he going to probably divorce her and try and take everything he can in the process? Yeah. Well, yeah. But he's probably not actually going to kill her. But that plants a seed in Travis's already sick mind, mm-hmm. already uh, misogynistic, absolutely despising women mind at that moment. Racist mind. Racist yeah. mind. All of that all coming of together. It. All of it. And, you know, that's the that's the one thing, you know, that it softens the blow a little bit that Iris's pimp is not black. Because originally it was black. And that was going to be yeah. a, a key element. But Scorsese and Schrader, in discussion of it, thought it would be too much <laughs> for, for the Even for, though I think for the they said that. The a lot of at the time that most of the pimps were black so i think it was actually a really interesting decision that they yeah they chose to make him a white guy yeah yeah it has a little bit more impact though too mm-hmm. yeah way. yeah because it's it's uh it's not purely racially motivated it's exactly it's, it's, yeah it's all about the uh the kind of person he is yeah and it's a and the it's, kind of people he thinks are destroying and cleaned need to be cleaned yeah. and need to be uh, what he's yeah. what he says to to Palantine when he's when he's in his cabin should be just flushed down the fucking toilet you know yes. um, and that <laughs> there's like scene by scene with this movie that you could go into yeah. right? but you know we don't have the time to do that necessarily um, but yeah. but there's a there's a detail that I never really thought about is that uh, Charlie T calls Travis by killer by killer and he and he, and he mm-hmm. sort of sort of motion finger gun at him finger gun at him it's like bye killer and he calls him that that at the end of the movie too he calls him that at the end of the movie as well which i thought was was an interesting detail that you know hadn't really oh in that like epilogue yeah in the in the sort of the epilogue scene yes he did yeah very end and it's it's just a it's a it's a strange thing you know, um, but that's it's one it's a, it's an we'll important moment. Ending. It's it's even also almost it's in a semi slow motion that he yes. does it. It's really it's and that's before chilling. right before his talk mm-hmm. with Wizard. Yeah, yeah. Where he kind of gives him the kind of actually 
good advice. Yeah. Like we said, like you're, you're a young guy. You should be out meeting girls and, and getting laid and yeah, you know, you shouldn't be having these thoughts and these problems, even though like, obviously there's nothing wrong with a person having depression, which he probably does. Yeah. Depression, PTSD in a way, but um, he just, he's got to take care of himself and he doesn't. Exactly. I mean, he's, he's he even talks constantly throughout the movie. It's like, you know, I, I'm not going to put any more junk food in my body. No more pills. Yeah, that's a big thing. And, uh, and all everything these... you see him eat is junk Junk. Food. I mean, he's pouring schnapps on bread and eating it for breakfast. It's what is, No, it's bread, peach brandy, milk, and sugar. Yeah, that's what it was. Ew. It's just, I, I know. It's just like, but apparently that is the that's sequence. That's hangover food. <laughs> well, that's hangover food. But but also, that is also the, the <laughs> moment. That convinced Bernard Herrmann to write the score for the movie. Really? Was was him pouring the... Him eating that? Yeah, was him pouring the, the, the peach brandy on top of his breakfast. It's like, all right, I'll do this. <laughs> Bernard Herrmann was a, an unusual guy, but boy, did he write a great score for this movie. <laughs> and this was his last score. Evokes a mood. And oh, yeah. That is... It has sort of two parts. It's got the part... That sort of doom music, the scary sounding music. But then it's got the other one that is sort of this peaceful, nostalgic feeling jazz score. You know, where... Okay, maybe you've got a better ear for this mm-hmm. than I do. Because it kind of sounded like the same music in different scenes. Like in mm-hmm. a, you know, not really happy scene, but like not as dark scenes. It sounded like they were putting the same music in two totally different types of scenes, yes. but it mm-hmm. giving the feeling yes. of this, giving totally different feeling to each one. Is that is that right? It was it absolutely. The same music? It is the same. Music. Okay. And the cue that's really interesting is the one I think at the end where it sort of combines the two. So after the whole bloodbath sequence. Mm-hmm the two elements of the score brought together into one thing. It's sort of a minor key version of that melody. And it's, I find that really effective. Um, oh yeah. I mean, that's a little bit ahead of where we are because next is June 8th. That's the day. He just says, I don't know how I got here, but today there was a change. And what's weird is June 8th is my dad's birthday. And my son's birthday, so I was like, every time, I, from oh, the no. first time, and from the first time I saw that movie, I was like, well, that's weird. You know, it's obviously just an arbitrary day that Paul Schrader picked, yeah. but it's like <laughs> one of those odd things. So then we have the scene with the gun salesman, Easy Andy, uh, played by, uh, oh my gosh, his last name is Prince, and I can't remember, but he's the subject yeah, of, yeah. of uh, Martin Scorsese's short film. American Boy, um, which is available through Criterion Collection. Um, oh, is that on the Scorsese shorts it thing? It is. It is. Ah, I haven't watched that yet. Yeah, yeah. You should. You should check that one out. But so then, you, then you have you know so that 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 scene and and there's laying out the guns almost like they're the elements on the altar. Um, the mm-hmm. shot is what what's called what Scorsese used a lot called the priest's eye view, where where it's supposed to be the view of the priest laying the elements out on the altar. So the elements for communion, ah. communion out on the altar. You see the same shot uh, multiple times in this movie. One of them is um, the candy and money at the porno, at the porno theater when he's handing yes. the money mm-hmm. over. You see it when he's standing over Betsy's desk and he waves his hand. 
and, and then the guns being laid out uh, on the bed. It's something. That scene is sort of like, you know, hey, and I can I can get you get you a bunch of drugs and stuff now too, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. It's 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 a I, I that scene is sort of weird, but it's fun. I, I something it is, fun. it is almost fun is I thought is that the right word? But yeah, I think that's the right word. It is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Then then he goes to uh, the Palantine rally and and has the conversation with the with the secret service agent he's talking about 357 magnums and all these things and it's like and he gives the fake name and the you know so so he becomes at least he's smart enough to do that yeah he gives a fake name and he and he makes up a social security number without enough numbers i was thinking of my telephone or a zip code yeah i mean it's just like it's such a it's it's again sort of that awkwardness it actually puts him on some level on the radar of the Secret Service, I think. Um, and it's kind of an important scene. And then, of course... they recognize him later, yeah. Then right after that, you have the famous You Talking to Me scene uh, where he's playing... What about when he's, like, buffing up? Oh, my gosh. That montage. That montage and, you know... Dude, that shot of him with the hand over the flame. Over the flame. What is with his arms? Oh, my oh, gosh. It's like he's, he's, like, he's, like, so cut during that scene too it's like, he lost like what 30 pounds for this or something was it that much oh my god i think so because what's what's scary is <laughs> a little over a year ago i was that lean <laughs> i was i actually was like six pack lean and all that and not anymore but <laughs> it was god. just it's just like so what so instead of the veins sticking out on his arm and stuff like that it's like yikes anyway that was scary looking yeah it but was still i gotta say i'm gonna say it young robert de niro in this movie <laughs> Very, very hot. <laughs> I'm into it. All good. Hey, I I can't really comment on that. Just admit it. He's hot. Yeah, he is. You can say it. He, he's hot. He's, personally, to me, not quite as hot as Sybil Shepherd. She's gorgeous. Oh, in she's this. gorgeous. She really is. Yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> before this, she had you know caught a little bit of shit for her role in Daisy Miller, Peter Bogdanovich's movie, and not really being up to the task, and was sort of on a little bit of a of a ebb uh but scorsese gave her this role and boy she, she's great in in the role she Desi. is um and she's Absolutely. not really in the movie from here on out very much at all hmm. i mean the it it shifts over to um iris it switches over to iris exactly but i mean one thing i wanted to mention about the you talking to me sequence and all that is like, I love that part. This was another one thing that grabbed my attention the first time where he goes, listen, you fuckers, you screw heads. And, it, and it's like, and then he, he screws it up. Yeah. <laughs> and so he like starts over. Yeah. And they goes like back to position one. It's like, it's like he's making a movie in his head that this is, yeah. this is my movie and I'm going to decide how it ends. But then he's so they show him laying on his bed, you know, in that big oversized jacket, you know, his all boots are on. Guns, yeah, yeah his boots are on or everything. This was a man who stood up. <laughs> then they show him sort of crawl into the fetal position. And it's like, oh, man, this movie does not like this guy. That's the part where, I, where I'm like, yeah, the movie is not glorifying uh, Travis Bickle in any sense. And, and I think that's a flaw that comes up in other films like this is... They tend to want you to empathize so much with the character that you're meant to like them, and that and that was one of the problems I had with the Joker from from last year. 
I just watched it recently. It was like it's trying to be Taxi Driver. It's trying to be King of Comedy, but it's missing the point of both of those movies mm-hmm. because Rupert Pupkin and Travis Bickle are not people you're supposed to like. You know, you're not supposed to root for these guys. You're not supposed to want to emulate them no, at all. No, and that that's sort of the opposite. The Joker feels like it's it's trying to gain the sympathy and you're supposed to emulate and all this stuff and, and that just it, it made me a little ill it seems so weird for me to like a movie like taxi driver so much but equally dislike a movie like joker but i you think, don't have to like the main no, characters i no. don't think you're even supposed to in a, in a lot of movies exactly and i think they give him just enough empathy or room for you to empathize with him and understand where he's coming from but still uh, recognize that he's a bad person exactly okay and i think that's a really smart way to do it yeah yeah they, they did so it right too. they i think so too and and there's there's a just a scorsese is a genius i mean he's able to um to strike the tone just right on that razor's edge where it'll work and schrader too i mean schrader in writing the script i mean really did something special of course de niro in playing the role so you get those factors together and it's just it's lightning in a bottle so as the stuff shifts to iris it takes on a, a little bit it's it's almost like he, he he's got, he's coming out of this for a while mm-hmm. you know like he's sort of found a crusade he's found someone to try and save of course she doesn't want to be saved he sees it as a, a, a certain level of purpose. Yeah, I don't know what to what to really say about the Iris relationship. It's it's interesting. I'm I'm in a way I'm sort of glad that they uh, gave her a little bit of that independence. She's only twelve. Yeah. She, no, she should not be in the situation at all. She should be with her parents, mm-hmm. safe and sound. Like this is not what she needs to be doing. But she's not. She's still not scared, like, little fragile no. person either. She does have some strength to her, which I, I really liked, in a way. And when um, Travis is talking about, like, all the people that, you know, he's he wants to get rid of, you know, he mentions, like, uh, horrors are adding mm-hmm. to the filth in the streets. And that just kind of made me think, is like, uh, hey, what about the guys who solicit the work of a exactly. 12-year-old prostitute? Exactly. And it, Why are they the ones that are the bad people? Uh, yeah, that's kind of made me mad. <laughs> well, yeah, and but but the thing is, it is interesting. Is it's the the people that he ultimately kills are the people who are exploit yeah. exploiting this girl. But he doesn't say that. No. Who's a killer? That guy sports a killer. That's who's a killer. Sport never killed. Him. He kills. He's someone. a Libra. He's a what? I'm a Libra too. That's why we get along so well. He looks like a killer to me. I think that that cancers make the best lovers, but God, my whole family are air signs. He's also a dope shooter. So what makes you so high and mighty? Will you tell me that? Didn't you ever try looking at your own eyeballs in the mirror? No, but the thing is, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. Because in his mind, he's being some sort of avenging angel in that closing mm-hmm. sequence. It's really only a the only reason he even does that is because he fails in his attempt to assassinate Palantine. Yeah. And it's interesting, those two scenes being the way they are, because you have, uh, if he had succeeded in killing Palantine or even attempting to kill him, he would have been put away forever, you know? He would have been dead or in jail. Yeah, yeah dead or in jail or certainly not what actually happens, because he goes out and he kills 
Sport, the other folks, and th- this this closing sequence. Sport is just bleh. Yeah, he's clearly <laughs> taking advantage of this fragile young girl. And that one scene where they kind of, with him and her and their quote-unquote relationship, like... Oh, gosh, that scene is... So fucking gross. It's, it really is. So gross. It really is. And um, he, it's, it's pure manipulation on mm. his part. I mean, he's just putting on the shackles of her remaining bound to him and making him money. And then as soon as she doesn't make money for him anymore, she's gone. It's really disturbing and you know part of you goes these people <laughs> i'd like to say they deserve to die you know it's 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 hard it's a it's a weird thing when the, when you go i mean obviously i don't really feel that way i mean that's not my that's what movies are for they yeah. let you get at those yeah. feelings yeah and and so there's this you see somebody like sport yeah you want to see him you gone you you do not able to do this to somebody else exactly exactly so when doing this to iris so what I mean, and and the thing is, you know that that closing sequence, the closing shootout, suck on this, where he just shoots him in the stomach and just walks away. The camera is it's just completely objective. It's just showing things as they happen. It's not getting in close. It stays pretty far back from the action um, of that whole sequence, and it's very real. Feeling. A lot, a lot more bloody than I remember it. Being. Yeah. Wow. And the thing is, the the colors, of course, in this closing in this sequence yeah. are all desaturated uh, to keep it from getting an X rating, because they couldn't distribute an X rating, which you know it's like unrated later or NC seventeen. So I would say the worst part of that scene, though, is just is the fingers. Oh yeah, everything else it feels like I don't really know what it was like in seventy six. Now that I think yeah, about it, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm going off of what I'm used to now. Yeah, it's it's. It's really kind of tame. Yeah, in general, it, it's 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 bloody, yeah. it's violent. It's it was it's a lot for for that one sequence. But you know, I mean, we're used to. Friday. We also watch a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, we're used to Friday the Thirteenth movies and Saw movies <laughs> and, and uh, you know all sorts of things that have pushed the envelope far beyond Taxi Driver. But it's still, but you know, again, it's with yeah the shooting style, mm-hmm. the colors, the way the way they do it. It it feels a lot more gritty and real than a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and, and in an action movie, I guess, I, and, and I'm not disparaging action movies, I love action movies, but there's going to be a lot of quick cuts in that, in that kind of thing, in, right. a, in, a, in a shooting, you know. You're going you're gonna to see Sport grabbing his stomach close up, and you're going to be seeing this. This is, this is just like, bang, you know, I'm trying to hold myself up in the doorframe and I fall down. You know, this is a makeup heavy effects sequence, you know, done by Dick Smith, the great Dick Smith, who who did uh, work in The Exorcist and Scanners and so many great... So many things. Yeah, I, I, I am in awe. And, you know, The Godfather. And, you know, he did Marlon Brando's makeup for The Godfather and Amadeus and, uh, you know, these kinds of things as well. So, I mean, he was... Dick Smith was something really, really special. I, I know. I was so happy when I saw his name in the credits. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit, Dick Smith. He's, he is... He's rad. He was kind of a hero of mine in a way too. I think I just love his his work and and his his the interview with Jodie Foster on some of the on some of the special features on the on the disc are are really fun because you know he would she was like really interested in this and he would 
you know, take her through, you know, how all these different things were done. And, and, and she thought that was so cool. And, oh yeah. Cause that was like one of the big controversies was her uh, at her age being yes. in that, in that shootout scene. Yeah. Cause she really and was she, 12 or 13. Yeah. yeah. You know, even, even the earlier scene where, where she's, you know, supposed to be undoing his pants and stuff like yes. that. That was actually her sister, her older sister doing that okay. as a double uh okay, doubling for her. so <laughs> yeah so so that that's good to know but so there there was not not that kind of exploitation going on thank goodness okay. so anyway the, then after all this you know because these people are quote the scum of the earth you know travis gets declared a hero because of this but like we talked before but is he does is the is the coda of the film reality a dream is it is the shootout even the stuff with the the mohawk shaved head thing is that even real that is some of the question you know you and i disagree on this because i think it's i think it's real i think it's real i think that because the movie i really feel the taxi driver is in a tradition of of realism that what we're being shown on screen really happens. Could it be heightened through Travis's perspective? Yes. But the objective stuff, the, the, obje- the objectivity of the camera for so much of this, of this sequence makes me think that, you know, this really happened. Now, the coda, I don't know. In the taxi? Yeah, the, the sequence where he's even talking to uh, Wizard and the other cab yeah. drivers. It's all, you know, his hair's grown back. He's super chill. For all I know, I mean, that could be a dream of him in a coma. Uh, because there is a dreamy quality to the ending sequence. There is. Um, and I don't know if this is really what I think, but it's... Because uh, I knew all the other theories about what the ending meant, but yeah. I don't know. For, when I first watched it, the, the first thing I got when you get to that coda is that it, a certain part of the movie, at least, didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. Is was kind of my initial so, thought. I, I mean, I, I I have a either I can I can believe any of them, but so either the shootout didn't happen or the ending doesn't happen. Is what is, is that? I would is that say what you mean? I would say anything with the mohawk. Okay. On. Okay. From what I could, when I was trying to read this time, just as a different interpretation. I don't know no. if this is really <laughs> what I think. It was just something I came up with. Is that. I, I don't think that, not maybe I didn't come up with that. I'm sure someone else has had this idea that I, I don't think that anything after he does the Mohawk thing actually happened because, like you said, they're so they're so chill about it at the end. And when Betsy gets in his cab again, also like his hair looks exactly the same as mm-hmm. it did before, and you know it never really looks exactly the same. Sure, when it grows back, which was a little bit of a clue to me. But when she gets in his cab again, um, I think that he's kind of also imagining her side of the conversation a little bit, too, mm-hmm. in that. Because, like I said, there is one scene where the look on her face lets me know that what she is saying in that scene, it doesn't match up with her face in this okay. one shot. Because she's saying, like, oh, I heard about you on TV and what you did and then, like how you're a hero and everything. But there's one shot that like doesn't quite match, match up to that. And it just kind of feels like that's him actually looking at what she really looks like and he's just imagining everything else she's saying. And then the last shot in the rear view mirror mm-hmm. kind of makes me 
dispel the whole dream thing too. Yeah. Because yeah. people say that this that this is him in a coma or his last dying thoughts. Sure. But why would you have that last shot of him in the mirror? Looks he looks very concerned or whatever he's seeing. Like, just that he could... Like, we were talking, like, it, it's kind of a little incident that he could just go back to being what he was before, even though he sort of, you know, seems, quote-unquote, fine right now. But that last shot, like, why would you dream that? Wouldn't you dream that everything was perfect and you would be off with mm-hmm. with Betsy at the end? And, right, yeah. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to look there, at it. No, who there, knows who's right? Yeah, but... and, and, you know, the thing is, I don't think that Schrader or Scorsese would ever give a definitive interpretation because that's not i don't think they should either. yeah that's not what i kind of like it this way <laughs> that's you know no i don't know what it is you know it's like it's like the cohen brothers they never do audio commentaries because they they're like it's not up for us to tell you what to think about our movie it's the same kind of idea it's like and scorsese has plenty and so does schrader they have plenty to say about this movie and you know as we well know Marty likes to talk and can talk a lot and really, really fast and has so much in his head. I love hearing interviews with the guy. I love hearing him speak. Oh, it's it's, awesome. Because he's just a fountain of interesting, of just interesting stuff to say. So um, he just knows everything about everything about movies. It's just insane. Exactly. So I know that, that they probably address the ending at some point, but I don't know that they would ever give a definitive, this is the ending. They might say, this is the way I saw it. This is what I put into that ending. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's right for everybody. And another thing is they, they will both clear, very much admit that most of the making of the film was instinct. And then we just sort of found out what it meant later. <laughs> you know, that makes sense. Uh, that's I think that's something that that is true of a lot of really good filmmakers. It's kind of like I made this movie because it felt right. This seemed like the right thing to do. That's very much like David Lynch, you know, for example. It's mm-hmm. like I don't know what it means. Don't it just it, 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 it just felt yeah. right. You know, like like <laughs> you know his whole thing. You know how you unlock the minis- the mystery of of Mulholland Drive. Here's your clues, and they were just bullshit clues that he <laughs> that he wrote down to appease uh the uh the company that was putting the dvd out so it's just like you know those are the, that's one of the great things about movies is it can be interpreted in so many different ways but i think i'm good on taxi driver and we actually we skipped over the the scene in the um convenience store oh we did oh my goodness yeah that ooh, that's brutal that really hit this time yeah really hard yeah so this is this is a bit earlier in the film. This is um, after he's bought the guns. It's before a lot of the Iris stuff, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So yes, he he um, he goes. He happens to be in a little like Seven Eleven convenience store. He has one of his guns with him, and the store is being held up, and and he shoots the guy who's holding them up. And it's a young black kid. It's a young black kid, and um, that is the that is the one sequence where sort of that racial element was still retained. Because then you know he says he's like I don't have a permit for this gun. He's like, and the storekeeper's like, oh I'll take care of it. 
I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Just leave. Oh, me. even like right after he shoots yeah. him, the guy does not act like shocked. It's just like he's been. He just he just says he just says, "Did you get him?" It's like this is a Tuesday. Like, oh, damn. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know, there's nothing different about this to him. It's like this happens to me all the time. And he, and he just, like, he just, this person is nothing because he tried yeah. to rob me. doesn't matter who he was. And he is. grabs yeah. a baseball bat so and just cold. starts beating the shit yes. out of his body. You know, wh- whether he's dead or not um, at that point, he's just, it's for no reason. Yeah. It's just angry. It's just anger, you know, at the fact that this is a Tuesday, you know, that this has happened a lot. And I think there's a racial element in that, in that beating as well. Oh God, absolutely! Yeah, and it's that whole scene. Um, it's very disturbing, and to me, that's probably the most disturbing scene in the movie. Um, to me, that's more. That's than, the one. Yeah, that really got me yeah, this time. More than more than the shootout at the end, and you know all that happens on. You know, and one of the things that I noticed this time that I don't know why I didn't notice before is this, there's no music in the sequences where he, of extreme violence. So the convenience store street scene, there's no music. Right. During the shootout, the bloodbath, quote-unquote bloodbath, at the end, there's no music. Until he brings his finger to his head and sort of, you know, does the yeah. thing. Uh, then, then the music starts and carries us through to the end. And that's where it meshes the two, you know, sort of the heavy doom music and the uh, jazz melody together. But boy. So anyway... As I talk about Taxi Driver, I think I it it affirms for me. It's like yes, this is my favorite Scorsese film because there's just so much in it. There's so much there packed into this short. I mean, it's a, it's an hour and forty minutes or something like that. Yeah, it's not a very long movie. It's it's it is so tightly constructed and paced, which is something that Schrader does so well in his writing. Is, is just construction. Of, of a script and a, and a story. Everything sort of has a purpose, you know, and, and to, to see a, a young filmmaker sort of strike into his own like this with a movie like this is even, you know, 40 plus years after the fact is kind of electric. I love that. And, you know, as much as I love his other work, I mean, if I'm going to have a good time watching a movie, I'm going to turn on Casino or I'm going to turn on Wolf of Wall Street or I'm going to turn on my favorite of the gangster films, which is Goodfellas. Goodfellas uh, right. You know, Goodfellas is, boy, it, it, I love Goodfellas. I love <laughs> Goodfellas. We know that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in a way, I'm also glad I chose Taxi Driver because otherwise we'd be talking about Goodfellas and Casino. <laughs> back to back, which they get compared enough, I think, as it is. Um, so, right. uh, but I'm glad you chose Taxi Driver too, because, um, like I said, I hadn't seen it in a few years, because I hadn't, I don't know that I really liked it, or at least didn't like the experience of watching it. Right. Like when I first did, I, I don't think I, I still don't really think I do. I don't know that I'll, I'll throw this on, you know, again in the in your future, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, there was a lot to unpack with this, and uh, it's it was really interesting to get into it and get into the character. It's a movie that I can't explain why I have seen it as much as I have. You know, you don't have to. Well, that's good because sometimes I, it just you know there's I, just something in it. When I I think I tweeted out when I watched this, I have seen this movie far more times than can possibly be healthy. <laughs> you know, you seem perfectly fine. Okay, that's. I, 
Good. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> Not from me. Uh, so, so uh, anyway. So now, um, let's... But do you know what movie I like to throw on when I want to have a good time yeah. with Scorsese? Yep, yep, yep. That is Casino. Oh my god, I'm so freaking... I love this movie so much. And it's funny because this is a movie that, that you know, I heard about a lot before I saw it. Um, a lot of my friends had seen it and they talked really? about you know, the eyeball popping scene and the beating people with bats scene and all these different things. And, and, really? and that's, that's cool. what they, that's what they focused on, which was weird, you know, cause when I actually saw the movie, it was like, okay, <laughs> you know, those, so are those, more. those moments There's are, so, are so minor to the they're so small. film. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're not minor. I mean, they're, they're important, but, uh, cause they're kind of key moments in, in Nikki's character, but, I mean, it's not There's the key to the film. To get into here, um, yeah. So I haven't seen this movie that often of of out of Scorsese's films. So many times. So this is sort of like it's funny because because we each sort of have the opposite right. situation with with you haven't seen Taxi Driver very much and you realize that it's a great film but it, it's not it's not the love of your life. Yeah. <laughs> whereas whereas with me it's uh, I. It's sort of the same way with Casino for me. I like this movie a lot. I probably like this movie more than you like Taxi Driver. I like Taxi Driver. I, I, I'm I, saying I don't know that I would really watch it a lot. I understand that. I understand that. Honestly, if I'm going to pick one of the gangster movies, I'm, I'm going to pick Goodfellas. And it's not because I don't like this movie, because I really like this movie a lot. I actually, I rated it, I, I it bumped up an extra half star for me on this viewing. To five stars? To four and a half. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll accept that. Okay. To four and a half stars. Enough. Okay. Instead of, you know, five. Because five is Goodfellas to me. Okay. <laughs> Goodfellas and Casino are five stars to me. <laughs> okay. Well, that's... They are different movies. They as are. much as people want to compare them, they are very different. Yeah. There are a few similarities that can't be denied. Yes. I mean, uh, it's Same starts, actors. Same actors. voiceover. Mm-hmm. It starts at a turning point. You know, it begins with a right. turning point that sort scene. of we catch up with about halfway through. Um, They're both kind of a, a rise and a fall mm-hmm. of the characters. But all gangster sure. movies are a rise and a fall of a character. Sure. I mean, most are. I mean, I don't want to say all. I mean, the book sure was written by Wise Guy, that mm-hmm. Goodfellas was based on, and Casino were both written by the same guy. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, you know, those are sort of surface elements. Right. The similar I mean, similarities it, are more surface than than the undercurrents of all. There's differences in their relationships, mm-hmm. and oh yeah. Yeah. In all so, honesty, if go. I was if I was gonna <laughs> say a movie, the movie that I actually think is more like Goodfellas than Casino is The Wolf of Wall Street, because they're about the lifestyle. They are about the um, sort of crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm crap that these people do more than they are about and they're they're they have these characters that are carrying us along that are compelling but but the real star is you know look at how these guys live when you love someone you've got to trust them there's no other way you've got to give them the key to everything that's yours otherwise what's the point and for a while i believed that's the kind of love I had. So it feels like there's a lot of pressure 
to say specifically why Casino is my favorite Scors- Scorsese and one of my favorite movies. Like, you know, to list off all of the reasons. You don't need to. But I know, but if <laughs> but there is some things that obviously we want to point out and talk about why I think it's great. This is just this is one of those movies that I can watch anytime and I watch it all the way through all the time. In pre- I watched Taxi Driver once in preparation for this. I watched Casino like four times. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just like having it on in the background, not like, you know, sitting there watching. Sure. Cuz it, yes, it is 3 hours long. It's one of Scorsese's like epics. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you never I never want to stop watching it. I cuz there's always like a great scene to get to, you know, once you finish with whatever portion that you're on. If you, you catch it in the middle, it's like, oh, then I get to the end and I'll get to like the House of the Rising Sun scene, which I love. Yeah. But there's a lot. So first of all, um, I love the look of the film so much. It's very different than a lot of Scorsese stuff. Like when he's the gangster stuff, like on the East Coast mm-hmm. is like, you know, a little bit darker or whatever. This is Vegas, mm-hmm. you know. It's, it's like a magpie being attracted to shiny objects. You know, I'm just like, I'm so into like the lights and the colors of this movie. It's like, it, there's never a moment when this movie is not visually stunning to right. me. There's not something awesome to look at in the screen. There's obviously the color that we get, like of the neon from Vegas. But I also think uh, the costuming yeah. in this movie is huge for me. Yeah. Sometimes I watch this just for the, just to check out the outfits and what everybody's wearing. It is amazing. Like, um, I sent you the poster. Yes. Yeah. Um, My favorite, like, fan art poster for Casino is just, it's a full body, like, sketch of every suit that Robert De Niro wears in the movie. Yeah. And And it starts with his, like, little pink one, uh the jacket that he's wearing at the beginning. And then the last one is with the the same outfit, but the arm is burned because he's been blown up in the car. Right. And it's and they're in thing. order. Yeah, they're in yes, order they're as totally they appear normal. in the movie. <laughs> I was watching and, the movie looking at the picture and being like, Oh, yep. <laughs> and I was watching this thinking they could have they could do another one with just his bathrobes that he <laughs> that he wears throughout the I movie. I want them to I want them to do one for Ginger's outfit. Yes. She is she is oh god. Yeah. She's like style icon in this movie. Yeah, she's she's great. And you know, it's a it's a time capsule of a certain look in in the late 70s and the early 80s you know it's oh you just kind of focus on all the little details that mm-hmm. they put into it the um the collars on the guy's suit, yes that really really long sharp point yes that the collars go to and then you can just, yeah you can just kind of feel um you can feel the passage of time through the costumes yes like they Definitely. almost don't need those little like um you know title cards to mm-hmm. say like what year it is now like you can you can feel it in you know ginger's hairstyles yeah and the, you know her, her hairstyle changes and the way the yeah. costumes change and even those title cards really... are used really sparingly you know and it, it relies less on the music to show what time period it is than goodfellas does because the music okay. in goodfellas really does evolve through time whereas this it's sort of like it's eclectic you're hearing you're hearing music from different time periods in the 80s you're hearing even like i think there's like they're in a restaurant together uh ginger and and ace towards the end and there's music playing but it's like jazz it's not it's not something that's an 80s song to tell you hey we're in the 80s Um, whereas goodfellas he follows the time frame a little bit more with the music yeah you get more visual cues in this movie which i think is awesome even like the accessories like his uh his glasses Yes. De Niro wears these like giant sunglasses at one point. It's like, uh, that's 
We're in the they, 80s now. <laughs> they seem to get bigger and bigger with his age, too. Because <laughs> when they show him at the end of this movie, they're like, right. those VR glasses. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, this movie is just, like, so pretty to look at. Yeah, yeah. Just all the way through. And it's also funny. It's a lot more light than a lot of the other, like, gangster movies that we get. More than, A little bit more than Goodfellas. Goodfellas has its moments. Too, where it's, yeah. where it's funny, but. but there's always a sense of real danger. Yes, that you know, because like even even the famous scene in Goodfellas. I don't mean to talk about Goodfellas too much, but the you know you're saying I'm funny. Yes, that that because he's telling the story and everyone's laughing, but Henry Hill's there the whole time with his arms up like this, with like he's going to get hit or something like that during that whole scene. And when um, Pesci actually turns on him and says, "Are you saying I'm funny?" You know. Yeah. You are genuinely afraid that Tommy's going to pull out a gun and shoot it. And you do get that sense a little bit with Nikki in Casino. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. But he's also not in every sequence. He's not constantly surrounded by someone who's going to kill him. Whereas Sam Rothstein in, in this film is, he's the authority figure. You know, whereas Henry's a little bit of a, you know, he's an up-and-comer. You know, he's a little guy. He's a little more down the line. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a sense to that movie that he could get killed at any moment. Um, that doesn't that's, come in this one until much later. Much later yeah. in, the, in the movie. Even even though it starts with an attempted assassination. Yeah. You know, you know, with the car blowing up. It's, it's just... <laughs> and, oh, my gosh. that I got to say, that opening, uh, the Saul and Elaine Bass title sequence oh, yeah. is... Oh, yeah. I was going to talk about that. Amazing. <laughs> and I, you know, I love Saul Bass's work, you know, back in the Hitchcock days with Vertigo and Psycho and, of course, just endless numbers of just great title sequences. And for Scorsese to bring that back in some of these later films, in some of this period, I should say. Goodfellas has one that's a lot like Psycho. You know, um, mm-hmm. and then the Cape Fear one is really interesting. And then the one for Casino, just these wonderful old fa- old fashioned title sequences that we just don't get anymore, except in yeah, like James takes, Bond movies. Yeah, it does feel kind of like that because he takes the explosion from the car. It mm-hmm. fills it fills the screen. And then like you see uh, De Niro's character kind of falling Falling. It's supposed to it's be like a, a representation. Space. It's supposed to be like a representation of him falling into hell. Yeah, is what they said um, on the commentary that I listened to, because the the explosion changes into like the lights, the mm-hmm. you know like Vegas neon lights, but they're red, mm-hmm. and he's still kind of like falling toward him. So it's supposed to be like the the character's descent into hell, <laughs> which is very cool. Which is also you know very. Scorsese. I mean, there's a lot of oh, yeah. there's a lot of hell imagery in his movies, and it works so well with this one. I mean, mm-hmm. it's Vegas, it's yes. Sin, City. Sin City. You know, things are not going to turn out well for these guys. Even though, like, the movie starts off like the first half is so so glamorous it to is. watch. Um, like I said, I I told you, like, I got a little bit of the Wolf of Wall Street vibes from this this time. Even though Wolf of Wall Street obviously came way later, they're yeah. still kind of dealing with the same thing, which is showing just the incredible excess yes. of these people's mm-hmm. lives and how it is a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of envy 
there when you watch that just the way that they're able to throw money around and this Mm -hmm. and this and like just showing off stacks of money and paying twenty five thousand dollars for a coat and why do you need so many fucking fur coats in the desert anyway right (laughs) you know yeah (laughs) just the way that they live this lifestyle that most of us are not anywhere near right it's so it's so glamorous the way he shoots it and but you know below the surface there's not much going on there really right there's there's no love in the relationship between mm-hmm. sam and ginger mm-hmm. nikki is only concerned when he gets to vegas he's only concerned with getting more and more power mm-hmm. no matter what he does to his friend sam yeah so there's no trust to there yeah and the whole thing i mean is just a morality tale um, about the downfall of these characters and it's tale told in Sin City, like we said, where all of those things are there present. Greed, pride, yeah. lust, gluttony, envy. Yep. Like he says in the beginning of the movie, you know, in the end, we fucked it all up. And I love that line so much because it's, it's so self-aware and it's just so like, that's, that's what this whole movie is. Like, you had all of this stuff in Vegas. You had this chance to really make it work. And yeah, you fucked it up. Mm-hmm. And through one, your own doing. One of the things that I just realized with this movie whereas goodfellas is more episodic i mean things just sort of you know this happened and this happens a little bit more there's 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 a through line in this one there's much more of a sense of this domino falls Mm -hmm. and leads to the next one and the next one that leads i mean him firing joe bob briggs you know um uh alias john john bloom in this movie um leads all the way to you know his father-in-law at the end you know taking him down i mean it's just it's just one thing that goes that leads to another brother-in-law i'm sorry yeah brother-in-law i'm (laughs) sorry but um there's there's this sense of falling dominoes and how every little decision seems to lead to the the final downfall and it's little things too and that's one thing you know sam is so obsessed with details all yes. the time. There's the, you know... This chat- movie is so obsessed with details. Too. Yes, it is. But, I mean, but Sam... But I think that's part of it is because is it's inside Sam's head for so much. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, you know, like, you, you stack the chips like this. You only... It's measuring the dice. You, yeah, measuring the dice, make sure they're not loaded. The, uh, you know, the dealer lifting his, his hand too high. Uh, there's only three blueberries in my muffin and there's, and yours is falling apart <laughs> an equal it. amount of blueberries in every blueberries muffin in each. Yeah. Muffin. So do you know how long that's going to take? I don't care. And that's the thing, you know, with him, it's if the details aren't correct, the big picture doesn't matter. You can't see the big he picture. He can't big even picture s- past the details. Yeah, exactly. And that is sort of his fatal flaw. He can't even seem to see that Nikki's actions are taking all of this down and that Ginger is still hung up on her old boyfriend and, you know, which is a weird relationship, you know, and this, should we just get into that? Can can we do (laughs) that? Okay. So, so like the big thing that we, when we first talked about this, we were both kind of having issues with Ginger's character think in the way that she's she's portrayed like we we were both a little confused by her but i think it makes a lot more sense to me now okay we were just talking in taxi driver about sport and iris exactly i mean this is like her grown up almost yeah and uh you know james woods plays uh, 
quite a scumbag in this film. A big stretch for the guy. Um, big stretch. Big stretch. Um, so he's uh, plays Lester, who met. You know, he he describes. You know, I I look at you and I still see this girl with braces and all this stuff. And it's just it's creepy yeah. and gross. And yeah. and he's and he's there, yeah. There's no um, there's no specific details given, but you can kind of infer from what people yeah. say. They he's described as her pimp boyfriend mm-hmm. that she's known and seemingly been with since she was 14, 14 which is and they don't, so they don't much explicit, like Iris. Yeah. And they don't explicitly state anything, but you can kind of infer that she was probably a child prostitute too at 14 yeah. and that he was her pimp and that he was also like her quote unquote boyfriend, yeah. but he was really grooming her yeah. to be you know dependent on him and yeah. therefore, you know, remain loyal to him throughout her life because because of this control that he had over her when he she was a child and he clearly doesn't actually give a shit oh no because he doesn't give a shit about her at all there's the there's the sequence where she is on her wedding night weeping on the phone to him and you know he's cutting lines of coke and you know some and there's another girl another girl there who comes over and you know uh, snorts a line and and takes off and it's just like but he's, oh, yeah. he's, he's he says all the right flowery words uh-huh. to her that he's probably been feeding her her entire life. He doesn't mean any of them. A lot like sports uh, monologue, you know, it's like, hey, you're yes. you're my girl, you're, you know, all this stuff that he says, and and it's kind of cool that these two movies got paired together because <laughs> because I never I don't know if I would have thought of that if I had paired it with Goodfellas or something like. Because that, it, it just seems so clear. I mean, it just seems like this obvious sort of weird connection with yeah. with Taxi Driver that kind of gives Taxi Driver sort of a even further sense of authenticity because we know that Casino is based on a true story. Yeah. I mean, and much of I, I haven't read the book in a while, but much of it is true, except, you know, the names have been changed. Uh, the Tangiers was actually the Stardust. Artist, yeah. um, Ace Rothstein was uh, Lefty Rosenthal, Rosenthal. and um, and Nikki uh, was actually Tony uh, Tony Spilatro. Spilatro. And I just started reading a book about Tony yeah. Spilatro written by um, his associate uh, for much of his you life. You started it? Yeah, I started reading it. It's really good so far. It's still cool. they're still in Chicago at this point. I've only read it, okay. read a couple chapters, but. Yeah, it, it's got all the Vegas stuff in there, and actually, um, I, I'm I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the his name off the top of my head. It's Frank uh, something. <laughs> Maybe we can put it in the in in the notes or something yeah. if we remember. But um, it's it's got a um, he was actually a consultant on this film, and he and he appears as a bodyguard. In, uh, oh, cool. or, so I mean, he's he's in the movie. Um, so there's, that also brings some level of authenticity to, you know, and credibility to, to this film as well, which is kind of cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that it needs more than it already has, but, um, it, it's, it's a cool little thing, cool little detail about it. I'm sure this is a relationship that happens all the time with yes. girls that get into that lifestyle. And I, I like what you said last time we talked. You said something about how she's she's really Ginger is really kind of like a child. Yeah, when she's talking to him, it's so weird because 
she's set up in in the first time we see her. Oh my gosh! I mean that sequence oh, where, that whole, the whole where she's at the crap table mm. and she's and she's stealing the chips and you know they and then then she says oh yeah she starts throwing the chips all up in the air and it goes into slow motion and he's like yeah that's when I yeah. fell in love with her. And it starts playing Love is Strange. Oh, from God, a, I love that little, from that an, little sting. From another of your favorites. Uh, that, Dirty Dancing, that we will, yeah. That we will be talking about at some point. Yeah, even that, that whole introduction to her character, that montage. Yeah, the montage. The where she's, that, and the voiceover that Sam does. And she seems like the most like put-together, independent woman. You know, He describes her as like a queen around the casino and... That she was one of the best known, best liked, and most respected hustlers in town. So it seems yeah. like she had it all going for her. Uh, you can see the way she, the way she treats people. Everybody loves her, and everyone loves being around her. She's that glamorous, exactly. like effervescent personality. That gosh, she could have gone so far if but the then... men in her life hadn't fucked it up. <laughs> Ginger's mission in life was money. Let me get it back. See you, Ginger. Okay, thank you for asking. She was a queen around the casino. She brought in high rollers and helped them spread around a lot of money. Hello. Hey, Ginger, how you doing? Great, and I have something for you. You got me covered? And for you, you there. Do. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself. I got some lucky pills for you, Annie. Okay. Who didn't want Ginger? She was one of the best known, best liked, and most respected hustlers in town. Smart hustlers like her could keep a guy awake for two or three days before sending him home broke to the little woman and his bank examiners. And when she's around Lester, she's she's hunched over all the time. She's sort of slumped down in her seats all the time. And at mm-hmm. first, she's not like that with, with Sam. Later in the movie, she is. I, she becomes more I and totally, more that way. Yes, you can definitely feel that in that last scene after she's left Sam after she's taken all of her money out of the bank the cops arrest her yeah like when the cops are arresting her yes they pulled her over she's crying like a little child and she's asking like why why what's wrong like she's very childlike in that scene yeah and and you know at first I mean she's she's composed when she's around Sam at first Mm -hmm. but then as it just goes on she becomes more like she is with Lester where she's hunched over and she's small and 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 Sharon Stone's a tall, you know, oh, woman. I mean, she's she's formidable. I mean, she's she's taller than Robert De Niro in this movie, <laughs> or uh, James Woods, as I recall. <laughs> I mean, by a lot. And she's usually in heels. And so it's just like this um, this this thing. I mean, she's she doesn't look like she w- should be, you know, shrinking like this. And and it just makes it more noticeable. And I tell you what, I mean, she. She gives an incredible performance in this movie that I don't... I I mean, she got an Oscar nomination, well-deserved one, but I don't know if she, because she's Sharon Stone, doesn't get the same kind of credit that she should for this. She absolutely should. You know, because this is... is, She's the best in this movie. Yeah, and to, to say that she is the best gives the best performance in a movie that stars Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci is really saying something. It's, it's Cause uh, her character just goes through so much more. Um, yeah, I think the, the reason that she's like that with Sam later on is that once again, like she's been sort of coerced into a relationship that she never wanted in the proposal scene. 
she tells Sam, I don't love you. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get married. I don't want this kind of lifestyle. I'm, I'm not the right girl for this. She tells him that straight up. And their whole marriage is just more like an arrangement, as they yeah. they say kind of later on. Like, he's like he's 43, I think he said. Yeah, he says I'm 43. So he wants, he wants to get married and have kids and, and have those, you know, lifestyle, you know, milestones that you're supposed to have. Because he feels like he's running out of time for that kind of stuff. But she's not the girl for this. Right. And she tells him that. And right. still, he thinks he's... Uh, it sort of feels like the... All of the men, even it goes on to um, Nikki. Just yes. none of them really love her. No. They just want to possess her. Exactly. And, you know, Nikki being there as her shoulder to cry on, you know, mm-hmm. it's again, total manipulation. And, yeah. and, and, you know, he, one thing that's so weird is they, they all have these different ways that they abuse this woman. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, you, you get the impression that, that Lester has been physically abusive. You know, I, I, oh, yeah. I sense that we don't see it happen in the movie, but he's, he's so horrible to, to the daughter, to, to Amy. And it's just like, oh, God. and, and, but, but what's funny is Amy's like, yeah, whatever. She sticks her tongue out. At she sticks her tongue out. She's, she's like, she, she yeah. is, she is not <laughs> afraid of him at all. And it's it. like, I'm not going to let you make me into something that that I see my mother do. I see what you're doing to my mom in a yeah. way. Yeah, and I'm I'm not I'm not that I'm not that. Which is sort of like you don't get any more of that story really. But but it's like is is Amy the one to break the cycle? You think so? I can kind yeah. Of see it you could that. you could I see you could see her growing up to break the cycle. But then you have Sam. Uh, yes, he he pulls her, drags her on the floor at one scene. He never yes. strikes her, which I think is weird. Not weird, interesting, because you see, like he almost has this sense, like he wants to, <laughs> you know. And but he, but he, but oh, he holds himself back this... from actually doing a slap or a punch or something. Nikki on the, is is then, you know, he throws her down the stairs, and it's just, and it's actually a very. I see him like kind of shoves her down the stairs, and he, ha- yeah, he has that scene at the the dinner table, where yes. he's like telling her to go home, and he's like, oh. Yeah, he wants to. Yeah, and but it's it's almost like he's he knows that if he does that, I mean, it's, it will affect his career. Oh. but that's just all he cares about. Sure. So his his method of abuse is much more verbal and manipulative. You know, he even uses the whole thing about trust as a form of manipulation. It's like I'm going to give you my own the the other key to these this two million dollars. Okay. Shakedown and kidnapping money. Shakedown and kidnapping money. And it's like, I trust you. But he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> no. And, uh, all, all of the these men just, they play on her, her weaknesses and exactly. her vulnerabilities exactly. over and over again. One thing I noticed this time, because I was more looking at her character specifically, was something that she says over again is to these different men is, uh, you've been so nice to me. Right. As she tries a different man on, you know, like when she's first with Sam and he's, he takes her to their new house and all the, the furs and jewelries. And she says, oh, no one's ever been so nice to me. She says the same thing to Nikki. That's interesting. When she's, um, she's kind of crying to him about, about Sam and what, you know, when he had the guys beat up Lester yes. for uh, coming to take her money. And Nikki's, like you said, he's the shoulder to cry on in that moment. And she says the same thing. She says, 
you're so you've been so nice to me it's just her looking for something that's not there at least not in these men that she's trying it with right which is so sad exactly yeah and it's it's a tragic i mean it's it's sort of a grand opera kind of a movie you know it's a big story um with Mm -hmm. with a big downfall with a big tragedy but the thing is the harshest tragedy of the movie is is ginger i really think so this time yeah um whereas yeah even though she's not the main focus yeah the guys are more exactly you know i mean because i mean ace ends up surviving and he oh, yeah. he, he kind of goes he goes back to what he always did he's fine yeah. you know vegas fine, yeah dude. they demolished the stardust they demar- demolished some of the old casinos the tangiers quote-unquote tangiers but mm-hmm. vegas goes on you know i mean they say you cannot tell me that the mob is not still involved in Vegas. i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> so with that much money floating around there's no way <laughs> but um but you know it's still it's still going on. I mean, there's yeah, Nikki comes to a tragic end, but he kind of is asking for it, frankly. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, Ginger is not asking for it. No, she is manipulated as a girl into a life that ultimately destroys her, and she yeah. tries to escape it. I really think she tries to escape it, but finds herself unable to do so, and that is more tragic than than anything. I think so too. Yeah, which sucks because otherwise, yeah, yeah, like like I said, when you see her at the beginning, God, she just has such potential as a woman. Yeah, at the end, it's she's nothing. But it's also kind of what makes her character a little bit confusing because she does have it so Mm -hmm. together at the beginning when we first see her. But then you realize, okay, a lot of people can put on a a front. A lot of people can can put on a mask. That you know, I've got it all together, but they're really underneath. There's great pain, and you know, which I think she was. Yeah. But still, she had the the potential to to do a lot more with her life. Oh, certainly. Yeah. There's there's no yeah. doubt about that. And and I think she, uh, ex- if except for the fact that she gets sort of drawn back to the same kinds of people, you know, uh, yeah. be they like Lester or like uh, Nikki and and Sam that are just there to just exist. It seems to destroy people like her. Yeah. And you understand her reason for marrying Sam. You know, Mm -hmm. like I said, that it's basically an arrangement. He loves her. I don't know if he really loves her, you know, but she, I think I, I believe her though. when when she says that, that she cares about him, you know, she cares about him as a person, but it is very much just like an arrangement that, She's marrying him for support, basically, to be set in her life money-wise. Yeah. And also, you know... in some, and he knows that. And to some extent, I mean, she's she's using the money that she has to support Lester, who is, mm-hmm. you know, she's still under his thumb uh, throughout so much of this movie, which is... And maybe all of this could have worked out just fine if there wasn't that that jealousy from the men and, and the control. Yes. Their urge to control her. Right. Okay. Why do I hate Ace now? Oh my god. Oh, anyway. I'm sorry. Well so, okay. may, maybe we should maybe we should shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the stuff that is sort of you know, sort of the flair and the fun of this movie. Well, I think there's that relationship and then there's a relationship between um 
Sam and Nikki. Yes. Which I kind of love. They're, yeah. They're, they're kind of cute together. I'm not going to lie. Okay, Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, when they're together, they make beautiful music together. They are awesome. so Nobody, dynamic together on screen. Nobody argues better than the two of them. Yeah, I mean, and they've been <laughs> doing screen. it, and they've been doing it since 1980 in Raging Bull, right? And and yeah. and I tell you what, I mean, you, the the scene in Raging Bull, you know, is almost there's the the you fuck my wife scene is almost you know uh, a precursor to what's in this movie, you know, um, the pink robe scene. Yeah, I mean, so so some of the some of the things that that happen and happen in this movie. Um, you know, we see echoes of it from from previous from previous things. So uh, that is almost like my favorite scene in this movie is um, when uh, Nikki comes over to Sam's house. His, he has his meeting with uh, Charlie Banker. And there's that that famous little monologue that he gives to him about how like if you don't have my money, I'll split your fucking head wide open. Yeah. <laughs> he threatens him, and then after he leaves. I don't know. They the two of them get into this argument, and it's kind of the best argument I can remember is like seeing in a movie because it feels so natural and well, and it you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, you know, and this I, I mentioned this in our previous conversation is is this movie seems to have more of um, okay, so little technical stuff. Scorsese uh, when he shoots improvisation, he sets up two cameras on each actor. And yeah. lets them go, and they get what they get. And this movie feels like it has more of that than just about any other Scorsese movie that I can think of. Yeah. Um, so especially in this scene. Yeah. So not only in that scene, maybe there, where he just so in the desert too. Yeah. Where he just put the camera on on Pesci, put the camera on De Niro, and said, "Go." Because and it's almost like they didn't have like specifically scripted lines, but at least points you know yeah that they wanted to bring up about the characters and to shoot back at each other yeah that's what it feels like yeah i mean and i think i think by this point and uh, they, they just had the rhythm down yeah i yeah. mean certainly de niro and scorsese but also pesci and scorsese had beyond a shorthand by this point i'm sure mm-hmm. you know where they could they could probably just look at each other and know what they're all need to be doing and that's the way this movie feels in so many places i there are so many great sort of weird details. Um, oh, yeah. There's, and I love the conversation, you know, that when they're sitting in the car together and having their argument too, while they're playing, you know, it turns on the radio. So, because the house is bugged. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're, it's go your own way. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac songs. <laughs> you play. Go, go, go. Yep. Yeah. So I, I, <laughs> the music in this, Oh man, music, music, music. We're, we'll get, we'll, we're get, we'll, we'll get to that, but, but, you know, especially the De Niro and, and Pesci sequences, but they're also uh, ones between uh, Sharon Stone and, and Robert De Niro that have that feel as well of just setting up the cameras and go and capturing really lightning in a bottle oh, yeah. with these just terrific actors just allowed to have a little bit of free reign and do something really interesting. Because they know their characters as well as they do, because they've inhabited them um, well enough, because they have this relationship with their director, that they're able to do something really unique that even Goodfellas wasn't able to do yet. 
as great as that movie is. Goodfellas is also a little bit more reliant on camera, on the movement of camera. There, there's not a still moment of the camera in Goodfellas at all until the moment where he's arrested. I mean, if you watch the movie, you will see that the camera is constantly moving. It's moving and zooms, yeah. Whereas this... Not really much of that in this, no. Yeah, it's there's, there's a lot more... St- moments of stillness that that are allowed to happen in this movie a lot of wide shots mm-hmm. oh and another thing about the look of the movie that we were talking about before too was the lighting i really noticed yes this or i really zoomed in on this this time around the lighting is really interesting not just you know the the lights in vegas but in the kind of the scenes where it's just two people in a room and mm-hmm. everything is kind of dark around them and they almost yeah. have like this spotlight light on them it's very soft yeah and sometimes it's kind of like a halo light around certain characters it's very bright on certain people and there's really love that this time around there's a cool use of of lighting in the scene where they're catching the cheaters at the tables like an actual spotlight yeah there are actual spotlights put onto the pit bosses that are coming into to surround the uh the guy and hit the guy with the cattle prod and they they point them out. It's almost like they're on green screen, it, because they stand yeah. out so much. Um, it's so beautifully done, and because uh, because you know obviously you're you're supposed to not see these people doing this, and mm-hmm. so to accent that is is really cool. There was another. This is a weird detail that I haven't quite even figured out. I don't know what you think of this when he has the. Um, the meeting in his office, you know, where he's sitting in his office and he puts his pants on. That's my favorite. I, I love that part. Okay, so so anyway, he puts his pants on, uh, no. then he calls him up and says, okay, let him in, then four minutes later, call me. You know? But there's this weird <laughs> shot. Okay, so so you got to know, that you, you know this movie really well, so you got you to gotta know what I'm talking about. There's this shot where it just, the camera's just on their shoes. Yes. And it just, for like a while, and then it pulls up to it see follows. them both. It sort of, sort of shows them walking, but it's like, are we supposed to notice their shoes? I, I was like, what, what, are we, what are we supposed to be noticing he, here? It's when he's saying, you know, oh, have a seat. And the other guy's like, oh, thank you very much. So, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a very weird shot on their, their feet. Yeah, because, you know, you have, you have Sam's shoes, which are just like polished blue i think they match it it could be a way of showing yeah the differences yeah between the characters because the other character is wearing like bell-bottom jeans and snakeskin boots snakeskin cowboy boots it's just sort of this really i subtle and so subtle i don't entirely know what's going on but it but it sort of pulled my attention i I literally think about that every time i watch this movie i'm like there's a shot of the feet it's like (laughs) you know it's like it's like i know what you mean yeah, so I'm. I'm. I mean, if someone has any particular insight on that, tweet at us. But it's just. It's. But God, I love that that moment before. Yeah, when he's sitting in his desk and he gets, uh, he gets the notification from the secretary, like the county commissioner's here, and he's like, "Oh, give me a minute." He steps out from behind the desk and he's not wearing any pants. And, but he's, he's wearing he's got his... his boxers and he's got the little. Stockings to yeah. and the little garters yeah. to hold but, the stockings up. Yeah. He has to go to the closet and put his pants on. I but he's still wearing his shoes. He's still wearing his shoes. And he puts his pants on while he's still wearing his shoes. 
Because it's the 70s. They're baggy enough. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, it's it's one of these things, you know, going back to um, the movie, it happened one night. There's this sequence. There's this sequence where Clark Gable, you know, is trying to freak Claudette Colbert out a little bit. So he undresses in front of her, you know, and he's because he's. It's a hard scene to describe. I haven't seen that. You've never seen. You'll love it. No, Seriously, you'll you'll love this movie. But but they also they, they talk about you know taking off your shoes first or your pants first, and it's like I your shoes. I would always take my shoes off. <laughs> you know, I mean, so so it's 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 just like this weird detail that I see in movies that I don't. It's sort of like in 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 Psycho when everyone's getting out through the passenger side of the car, even if they're driving. So weird. Yeah, this is yeah. there are these weird details in all these movies that and and and, and maybe and casinos just, kind of maybe in here casinos kind like, of full of them. Yeah, yeah, maybe here it just means like he wants to be comfy at his desk. I don't. Know. I don't know. <laughs> or he, I actually yeah, thought I it was love... like he doesn't want to crease his pants. Oh, that's a good one. That's, that's what I thought. Focusing it was. on the details. Yeah. yeah. Um. So he, yeah, there's. I love all these those little things. Whenever they're mostly at the beginning of the movie is it's probably my favorite like the first half yeah just when they're kind of describing you know how the casinos work and yeah. all the the little details like catching the cheaters and um um bringing in how he um brings in like the what is it the bookmaking he brings yes. it from off of the streets and into the casinos and bringing in the uh the the vegas showgirls and mm-hmm. I, I just especially love them the way they describe the casino like like it, this has all been arranged just to get your money, money. and yeah. <laughs> I love that point so much in the movie because like that is what this whole movie is about. Exactly, the house always wins is a line. The house always when, wins when I whenever I even over these characters. Yeah, it takes over all of them. Yeah, and you know that's that's one of the things you know I I have. I mean, if you if you like to gamble, more power to you. But just just <laughs> know that. You know, in the long run, the house does always win, and that, you know that's something that I would bring up to friends. It's like, you know, if over time, it's going to be a good way to lose your money. <laughs> you know, you know that's that's not me trying to be judgmental. It's just uh, I just honestly think that <laughs> seems to be Vegas. the me that I've never been to Vegas either, but the uh, just seems to be sort of part of the message of the movie in a weird you know, yeah. way, and it's and not in a, talk about... not in a moralistic sense at all, but it's just. You know, that's that's an element. We're out here to get your money. That's all we care about. That's all the bosses back home care about is getting their money. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is all they want to do. And you know, the first and the first half of this movie is a is also a testament to the fact that no one makes boring stuff more interesting than Martin Scorsese. Yeah. You know, because (laughs) it's all just explaining all yeah explaining all this stuff. Yeah, it's exposition. It's it's an hour and a half of exposition. You know. And I love it. <laughs> but it's so engaging. He does the same things in Goodfellas. He does the same things in Wolf of Wall Street. It's like, especially when you're talking about the stocks and stuff like that and their scam, you know, he'll basically start saying, he'll, he'll, Jordan Belfort will start saying, going into explaining some of the details, but he says, eh, but you don't care about that. Nope. So, and so he'll just skip it. And I, I love that. And there's some sense of that. In this, too, where it's just like, you know, I'm going to make these inner workings that are, you know, for most of us, it's it's over our head and we don't necessarily care that much about it, but just make it so it, incredibly engaging and yeah. something that makes you interested in it and makes you want to maybe look into it more. 
And it um, helps you understand the the manipulation and the the power of the of the characters when they bring in people that you know are never brought up again, like the whole story with um, Ichikawa. Yes, I <laughs> the, love the that Ichikawa. sequence. Yeah, and the to me, it's it's those sequences that are even more memorable. Those are the those are the sequences I think about and remember over time more than yeah. even some of the main plot points. I remember that. I remember catching the cheaters yes. and the I remember different shots of him, how yeah. they figure out how they catch the cheaters. And the, exactly. There's a lot of really cool close-ups in this movie, too, mm-hmm. that I love. Like, um, just, like, dice falling yes. or um, close-up on... Or it go, Another one of those spotlight shots where it kind of goes inside his pant leg yes. to see the little uh, Morse code yeah, thing the, or the whatever mechanism. device he's yeah. got so he can uh, signal his buddy. Uh-huh. Ah. So much good stuff here to, to love. But yeah, I love those. Those little details are my favorites. The part with the, when the, the plane lands on the, the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> we mentioned that scene too. Like another like kind of funny scene. But uh, and these are the kinds anything of... about the, the guys meeting in the back of the, the, the grocery store. Right. The, um, his mom being being back in the movie again. I, Marty's mom, uh, Catherine, Catherine Scorsese. Scorsese. It always makes me happy to see Catherine Scorsese <laughs> yes. in the movie. And I love how, how she would end up in like his friends' movies too, because you know he's in the Godfather Part Three. She's in the Godfather Part Three, and yeah. and some other things like that. And she's she's playing you know Catherine Scorsese in every movie. Yeah. But you know it's it's so it's so uh, so wonderful. She has such I a love wonderful this one presence. Too. Yeah, I love this one too. Like she's mostly concerned with her son cussing. And it's like, exactly. Uh, have you seen any? It's, like, it's just kind I'm, of funny. I'm sorry, <laughs> mom. Like, every... You know, I love that. It's like, sorry. <laughs> freaking head. Yeah. I'm sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love that stuff. You know, and possibly my favorite moment though is is the eye in the sky, the thing that I can quote. <laughs> that whole thing, yeah. Everyone's watching somebody. In Vegas, everybody's got to watch everybody else. Since the players are looking to beat the casino, the dealers are watching the players. The boxmen are watching the dealers. The floormen are watching the boxmen. The pit bosses are watching the floormen. The shift bosses are watching the pit bosses. The casino manager is watching the shift bosses. I'm watching the casino manager, and the eye in the sky is watching us all. Such a perfect moment. I love it. You know, this this movie is just populated with wonderful actors, too. Wonderful character yeah, actors. Yeah, oh, God. I mean, Not like, just the, the three mains, all the little side dudes. Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Hello. I love him. Fucking asshole. Little budge. That's yeah. like my favorite. It's like one of my favorite moments. You know, yeah, it's like they tried so hard, too. You know, it's like, I love how the they guy. go over and they, they tell them, you take your feet off the... Yeah. Put, take up, take your feet off the table and put your shoes on. It's like they just talk to him. It's no. like the guy won't budge. It's like yeah, he tried so hard, and then it's like so they call in the thugs. Okay, I want you to take him out of here off his feet and open the door with his head. And they do exactly what what they are told, and yes. that is very funny. You know. Okay, so the one actor in this movie that. Uh, Thelma Schoonmaker has commented was difficult to edit together a good performance of was um, Mr. John Bloom, uh, better known to the world <laughs> as as Joe Bob Briggs, who is kind, who is kind of playing Joe Bob Briggs in this movie. <laughs> you know, I a little mean, bit. 
uh, he's, he's wearing the bolo tie. Um, so it, it, it's just sort of, it's a funny little performance and he's not in it very, very much. Uh, I love the guy playing, uh, Frank Marino. Yes. It's great. Yes. He shows up a lot and stuff. Yeah. Um, God, I did not, I always forget to look up her name. Whoever plays Jennifer. She's oh, gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. It's like all the same little side people that, that get roles like this, but Damn, are they like good at it? You know, they are, and they really they bring such a sense of uh, just authenticity and realness to it, and they they create they create a world. Yeah, they do, and th- and that's one of the things that this movie does so well. I mean, they're they're like these weird, like I was saying earlier, just weird details. I I love the conversation that De Niro is having with the cop outside mm-hmm. the by the gate of his house while ginger is upstairs stealing the keys uh to the deposit box he's saying oh and my wife just had another baby you know <laughs> it's like oh well, yeah congratulations you know there was sort of weird handshake and all sorts of, it's a strange sequence but it also gives a clue into how you know sort of untouchable even by the police rothstein is or how they're in his pocket yeah yeah. Probably for sure. Oh, definitely. There's not really there's not an extraneous moment in this movie even though it does have all those. Even details. though it's 3 hours long, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, what would you lose? I mean, another m- movie might have you pull out some elements of the of the world that you see, you know, like do we really need the scene with the cheaters? Uh, maybe, maybe yes. not, but I think it's interesting and I think it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, so I want it there. Yeah. I mean, is it does it relate to the plot? No. Not not oh, Yeah, no. A lot of the stuff at the beginning has nothing to do ultimately with what happens at yeah. the end, but it yeah, it just gives such a richness and realness yeah. to the world. I think it the world that the movie is creating, like I think exactly. it's totally needed and it never Yeah. the the pacing on this entire movie is just perfect even when it's it's kind of sometimes they do kind of a hard transition from like one thing to the next they do it usually with the voiceover yeah it's like uh you know nobody had to you know watch out for nikki and then it kind of goes into the next thing and just yeah it just keeps it moving and, and you I know never that, get bored with this movie never you know and i think people could say things like well uh i mean obviously i think de niro is clearly playing a very obviously different character than jimmy conway you know uh mm-hmm. in goodfellas thought you weren't going to bring up goodfellas all that's i'm i i keep bringing it up but but i but i think but i also think that one of the accusations people would give is that nikki is similar to tommy and he is there are similarities there are similarities but i think what pesci is doing with nikki is very different from tommy i mean his voice is really different he's he's just they're they're violent hotheads yes but that's sort of that's that's almost an archetype for gangster movies at this period, you know, where you have... He even has a little more power yes. than Sam does in this movie. He's a made guy and Sam's not. Exactly. And he just wants more power yeah. as the movie goes on as soon as he gets to Vegas. And he has his own kind of downfall with uh, with drugs, the Vegas lifestyle, basically. Yeah. yeah. You know... So, and... Yeah, I think he's... There. There's definitely similarities. He's very violent. He stabs people in the neck with... 
yeah, a which, pen which and you know, puts people's head in a vice. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the 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 stabbing with the pen is maybe a little bit reminiscent of the scene in Goodfellas, where you know, go get your shine box, you yes. know. But I mean, he's triggered by something so much less than he was in Goodfellas. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, just like a guy being a prick to my friend for no reason. So and stab, stab, stabs him with a pen. And it's just a, that moment is just like it sets up everything you need to know about Nikki. And even there, because when they show him in slow motion, there's all the cigarette smoke that's like wafting up in front of his face. It's like he's the devil that he's I mean, holding the, the bloody. He's holding the, the yeah. he's holding the bloody pen. And he's, the smoke is rising up in slow motion. He's got the look on his face. It's like, okay, yeah, Nikki is the devil, <laughs> you know, and is yeah. is got that kind of vibe throughout the movie. And, you know, the the head yeah, and the vice sequence. Really, yeah, this movie is really violent and, and bloody in those yeah. instances. But I think they're short-lived and, and spaced are. out. And, yeah, yeah, the head and the vice is, is really gross. Yeah, his eye pops out a little bit. He's like, um, hitting the one. The one that's actually the worst for me is when they hit the guy's hand with a hammer. Yeah, I mean it's just it's just out there. I mean it's it's there's no again. You have that objective camera that Scorsese is so good at it, at the it right time. It doesn't cut away. No, it just holds on it, and you see it from a little bit of distance, and you, you see hear he's it talking happening. Yeah. It makes it so much worse than a bunch of cuts, you know, to make it look more violent. But it's also just like really good suspense because he's a there's his hand down there on the table. Mm-hmm. Sam is asking him about his hands. I saw you shuffle your checks <laughs> with your you, right can hand. Can you shuffle your checks your with your left, left hand? hand? <laughs> so you know something's gonna happen to uh-huh. that hand probably, and then whack. Yep. There it goes. Yeah, it's 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 the Hitchcock bomb theory. Yeah. You know, if you've got if you have a couple of people talking and then all of a sudden the bomb explodes, you get a quick shock. If you show the bomb under the table first with the timer, you have the audience going, what is going to happen? You know, yep. the whole time. And it's 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 a short one. It doesn't take long, but that conversation is scary, you know. And then uh, Nikki and Dominic's deaths yes, is, are very intense. Yes. More Dominic because, you know, he has to, Nikki has to sit there and watch them beat his brother to death yes. with baseball bats like very violently and they luckily they don't show that happening too much to uh to nikki the poor right. well, joe pesci but oh yeah. yeah when they they put his body in the in the, in the grave and, and his, his body is just covered in bruises and he's blood, still blood breathing his face and he's still, still breathing, breathing when they're throwing dirt on his yeah <laughs> and you see the dust sort of shooting out of his mouth you know, I, uh, and you can tell it's you can tell it's like a dummy. Yeah, you can, you can, stuff, but it's but it's still yeah, it's still pretty pretty intense. And what struck me about that scene, Frank was the right. one who who did it. You know, his mm-hmm. you know sort of his right hand man during this whole most of this movie. You know, he covers up for him. He doesn't. He he decides not to say anything about about his affair with Ginger uh, to the bosses and things like that. And then he's the one. He's just like you, motherfucker. And he just wants. He he's like ready because he has just had enough of Nikki by that point. And and he's like he is so angry. And I never really registered that before. But man, is he just yeah. done? 
with Nikki. And you, you barely see that, like, yeah. before this in the movie. Yeah. It just, like, it feels like it comes out of nowhere, this anger, but... But at the same time... the way it, it's it, building up in other people, too. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense, though. <laughs> I mean, I... But then also in this scene, there's also, like, the thing that Scorsese does with the funny with the really horrific. Like, what, what opens the scene is Nikki's is doing his voiceover. Yeah. And in the middle of his sentence, like, you know, he gets out of the car and he's, you know, he's still doing the voiceover. In the middle of a sentence, you hear him go, ah, as, yeah. <laughs> as Frank hits him with a bat, which, like, kind of makes you laugh. And then you're like, oh, shit. And that's another like, unique. This is really brutal. That's another unique thing about the voiceover in this movie. Because uh-huh. in in uh, the voiceover, the first voiceover, there are three, right? So one's yes. really, really short. One's, like, one line. But um, Frank has one line. Yeah. But, but you start with. It's almost like, is this a Sunset Boulevard thing? Because you, where in Sunset Boulevard, you know, the whole story is being told by a dead man. Whereas in this, you think that the story is being told by a dead man because we see, you know, um, we see Ace blown up in the car at the beginning of the movie. We don't know that he survives that until much, 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 much later. Um, so he is not telling the story from beyond the grave, but Nikki is. Yes. And that's actually a really kind of weird <laughs> twist, you know? Um, and it's it's something that is very different from Goodfellas because we know that uh, Henry and Karen are the voiceover, uh, are the narrators of, of Goodfellas. Sorry, I know, I keep bringing it up. I, I apologize. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I didn't say anything. Sorry, not sorry. But, um, but... But they both survive, and we kind of have a feeling they're both going to survive, um, even though there is tension that, you know, something could happen. But it's not told in that beyond-the-grave way, where in this, it's sort of a weird... Because I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about the fact that the voiceover is coming from someone we think is dead at the beginning of this movie, for most of the movie. See, I never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't so either many until... Times I, I, knew. I didn't either until we just <laughs> were talking about it just now. Yeah. <laughs> because... But uh, yeah, Nikki talks about it as if he knows what he talks in the beginning in the voiceover as if he knows what happens after he's dead movie yeah, yeah. I, I like it though i think it still works it's it, i do too i think it, i think it's an interesting and it and it because they both they have very different experiences mm-hmm. with vegas yes so they have two different stories to tell with uh nikki and sam exactly and so to to do the voiceover in that and you know scorsese is also proof that you know the old script sin of using voiceover that you should never use voiceover uh that it's cheap and all this stuff i tell you what no one does (laughs) no one does voiceover uh like scorsese either you have uh more that you wanted to hit we wanted to really hit quick on the music music real quick let's talk about the music and then we might have to be done because yeah we're we're probably getting really long here but um damn it the music in this is I mean, okay, everyone gives, and rightly so, gives Tarantino so much credit for his use of music in, in movies. But I'm sorry. Scorsese I, I, was them to doing wa- tell them it. Tell to watch Casino. Well, I mean, tell them, I mean, my gosh, tell them to watch Mean Streets, mm-hmm. you know, or Goodfellas, or uh, Casino, or, <laughs> or The Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, he's still doing it. Absolutely brilliant. He loves the Rolling Stones. He loves the Rolling Stones. So much. And the thing is, he uses... And he uses uses just the right part of the song and just Mm -hmm. the right amount of each song, I think. And there are so many. 
There's so many songs. Some of them, it's like it's like it's five seconds of a song. Like the Love is Strange moment. Yeah. But it's perfect. He uses yeah. just the right part of the song to like match up with the moment and with mm-hmm. her gait. Mm-hmm. Kind of matches up with the music as she's walking. Ugh. And if if I'm if I'm Brilliant. recalling if I'm recalling correctly, when he's in like the developing the script stage, he will say, write down this song, this band, and Probably. and and he's as they're going through this, just write it down in the script. Um, and the thing is, okay, so uh, "Gimme Shelter" is sort of a key moment in this movie. That was a key moment in Goodfellas, but he uses a different version of it. He uses the live version yes. of it, um, and that's used a couple of times. Uh, it's it's taken out and brought back in. Uh, then, of course, the big sequence for this one is... Um, I like the little um, part of Heart of Stone that he uses. Yes, Heart of Stone. With, there, Sam, and, with Sam and Ginger. Yes. There there are so many details, you know, and they're, they're not so on the nose that they're distracting ever to me. No. But, yeah. It, they match up for the time period and for the, the tone in yeah. the scene. Mm-hmm. He uses just the right music for it. Yeah. Yeah. Every single time. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. The big one at the end. I love the whole house, the house of the rising sun. sun. Ugh, and by the that... animals. Great song for one thing, but yeah. also just fantastic. The way that it's used in this movie as it kind of chronicles the downfall of every single character. In exactly. The movie. Exactly. You know, and it's, it's a every, scene. Like he says, like everybody came crashing down. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a scene, I guess that that's reminiscent of the ending of like the Godfather, you know, where you see all of the, Family the, business the being being taken care of, yes. you know, you know, Mo Green gets shot in the eye, and you know what I'm talking about. Um, anyone who's seen The Godfather knows what I'm talking about. But it's similar to that, but but it's it's told with such style, and and it's and I love I love the one with the guy that's down in, in where does he go? Mm-hmm. You know, he escapes down like Costa Rica. Yeah, down to Costa Rica, and they show him go inside and you and you're just seeing the doors and you're hearing the gunshots yeah you're hearing the gunshots happen then you see him holding his stomach bloody coming out i mean it's and falling in the water it's just so well done and there's this is scorsese i mean scorsese still has got it but this is just like you feel this is a filmmaker who has the medium so fully in his grasp just perfection i mean everything yes. about it from every detail to the big picture and that's the thing about scorsese yeah we've got a lot of focus on details in his movies but he also never loses sight of the overarching story and uh what we as an it's audience about should the be taking in yeah it's always about the characters and the relationships and even with all the stuff in Casino, like, what did we focus on the most just in our talk today was on the relationships of the characters because yeah. they're, they're, so, they're so strong. And he knows, even with all that other fun stuff that he throws in, especially mm-hmm. in this movie, that that is the core and that's what's going to make a movie have staying power. Yeah. And I really think this does. I think it has, I think, I think it is getting kind of reassessed as, hey, this is a lot better movie than we thought it was we just wanted to you know compare it to to goodfellas yeah and, and on its own it is you know stands up so well as its own movie it does it does and you know i don't mean to i i almost wanted to compare it to goodfellas to say why it's not like goodfellas you know what i mean <laughs> to try and make the try and make the case that this is its own thing 
you know, that's why, yes. that's one of the reasons why I think I kept bringing it up. Because it is its own thing. Mm-hmm. It's, some of the differences are more subtle, but, but overall, they're just completely different experiences to watch. Boy, there was our Ugh. Scorsese episode. We have to stop talking. Oh. Yeah. Um, but I just want to go watch Casino again. <laughs> I kind of want to so watch. I'm thinking about all my favorite scenes, and I want to watch them again. I, I kind of want to watch Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, how do you think we did with uh, with the man, our favorite, our favorite man? Did we do him do him justice? I think this so. time. I think so. I but we'll have more of an opportunity later on. I think. I'm sure. Will come up. <laughs> I, I have Again. no doubt that uh, more of his films will come up. And, I mean, because, frankly, I'm probably going to say we got to talk about Goodfellas at some point. Because I know, right? You know, uh, because I know we both love that movie. And it is... We should do an episode where instead of us each bringing a movie, we should just, like, bring a movie to the table that we just both freaking love and want to talk about. Just yeah. for the fun of it. Goodfellas could totally be one of those. Absolutely. And I... Ugh. I... I, I, I Definitely would love to talk about that, and um, as well as Child's Play too. <laughs> <laughs> Random, but yes, because, I love that because movie. they are they are so similar. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, do we want to do some quick recommends? Yeah, why don't you go first? Okay, so I actually have a couple of books uh, that I want to recommend. I know, you, yeah, you, I know yours is related to what we just talked about. Mine are related to what we just talked about. Um, this is. There are two books that I have here. One of them is uh, Conversations with Scorsese uh, by Richard Schickel. Um, and it, it it goes up pretty far. It's essentially a film-by-film film look at, well, and also... Uh, can you show it to me real quick? Yeah, sure. Sorry, sure people I listening. I just wanted to see this. Yeah. So. Oh, I love that picture. Yeah. So um, Richard Schickel, uh, who wrote for, I believe, Time, was a critic uh, there. He has a lot of stuff like this you know, with different, with different filmmakers. This is just a look at, you know, the things that Scorsese loves, the things, you know, it goes into music, it goes into directing actors, uh, shooting. It actually takes his films all the way up through Shutter Island, fairly comprehensive. And these aren't huge books either, you know, just a couple hundred pages, mostly interviews. The other one, is Scorsese on Scorsese, which there's a whole series of these uh, where you have different directors edited together interviews and quotations that they've given, which this one goes all the way. This one happens to end with Casino, as a matter of fact, as it's yeah. as, as the last movie that it covers. But this one is actually literally film by film. And it has, you know, some of the storyboards from Taxi Driver and all sorts of uh, and also some of the influences um, for each of each of his movies. I mean, I, I got I did an episode of another show where I talked about the movie Peeping Tom, the Michael Powell film, and Scorsese was very influenced by that. And you can see that influence in Taxi Driver. I should have brought that up in the episode earlier while we were talking about that, honestly, because uh, that character has got some similarities as well. So these two books are really interesting, uh, Scorsese on Scorsese, and it says it's edited by David uh, Thompson and Ian Christie, and it has a foreword by Michael Powell, speaking of uh, of Peeping Tom. And then the other one is Conversations with Scorsese by uh, Richard Schickel. 
my recommendation is a podcast I would like to recommend. Um, it's maybe a little specific uh, for some people, but if you're like me, you were a huge obsessed fan of the movie A Simple Favor, <laughs> starring Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick from Paul Feig. Um, we we talk about this, and we did like a little practice run uh, episode before we started recording. We talked about a simple favor. I I love this movie so much. I thought it was it's it's a blast. It's so fantastic. We'll have and to talk about it for are, real at some point. I think so. Yeah. I, I'll think of something to. to I like that one. It. I liked it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there are some other people that are fans of this movie as well because they created a whole um, like limited run podcast just doing a deep dive in, into the movie. It's called A Simple Podcast. Um, the hosts are Alana Bennett, uh, Christina Tucker, and Jordan Cruciola. And it's 10 episodes of them just kind of taking kind of a basic um, topic that they want to talk about for each for each episode and just like, again, like, yeah, deep diving into this crazy mesh of genres of a movie and they get great um guests like paul feig was wow they did an interview with him with the the costumers the last episode uh blake lively wow herself appears on the show i haven't gotten to that one yet Mm. i'm only on episode seven but i'm super stoked for that so oh it's it's a great podcast. You know, it's, you can tell you can you can hear in their voice the the fun that they're having and the love that they have for this movie, same as me. So I think it's, I'm gonna have to check that one out. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check that one out. Yeah. Okay, so what we have next is gonna be something a little different. We're gonna we're gonna try yeah, something different. Yeah, we're gonna do a series of episodes for the next four episodes before we hit another pair of our forever favorites. We are going to talk about movies about movies. Movies. Yeah, Yeah. because I think that informs... One of my favorite kind of things. Yeah, me too, me too. I think that informs how we sort of view movies, you know? (laughs) Um, So the first subject that we're tackling is a movie about the making of a real movie. That's the yes. one we're going with? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. You can tell how prepared we were to talk about this part of the show. Anyway. the I wrote it down. At the you did. Okay. Yes. Okay. But, all right. Fair enough. So, um, yeah, a movie about the making of a real movie. And mm-hmm. my pick is going to be based on your pick. So tell me what your pick is. Um, I picked Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Ed Wood. Oh, I love this movie so much, and I can't wait to talk about it. Okay. I honestly have not seen it that many times. Me either. But gosh, it just it just gets you. Oh uh, yeah, we'll get. Yeah, it's my it's my it's favorite. It's my favorite Tim Burton movie. I, I mean, think it's my spoiler too. alert. Okay, so my <laughs> movie is kind of connected to that, sort of in a little tiny bit yeah. of way, and that is I am choosing Elias Marriage's very funny, very weird little movie, Shadow of the Vampire. Which is a, I'm so stoked. Oh man, I love this movie so. I've only much. seen it once, but like, it it killed me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, I'm excited to watch this again. So I much. am so excited to finally be able to talk about it with somebody because yay, not a lot of people I converse with have seen Shadow of the Vampire, <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, so that, I didn't look at to where we where people could um, watch these movies. 
Uh, yes. If they need to streaming, give us a minute because I have I have Edward on Blu-ray, so I don't know. As do I. So I will look up Shadow. Um, Edward. It looks like it's um, available, maybe not for free, but available for rent on iTunes, uh, Prime, and Vudu. Shadow of the Vampire is. Oops, we couldn't find any streaming offers. No. So. Ugh. Here is the thing about Shadow of the Vampire. It is only available on DVD, and that DVD is out of print. However... I think I got it through Netflix. Yeah. That's how I saw it. Yeah, so it, it you can you can get it. Um, you Yeah, so that disc is still available. I would, you know, if you're a library person, check your local libraries, because a lot of them carry this still. Um, we always I've, recommend your local library. Yeah, I've found it. I found you can go to Half Price Books. I've seen this there for like five bucks. I mean, even though it's out of print, it's like around. Shadow of the Vampire, yeah. Yeah. It's on, it's on DVD Netflix. Yeah, great. It's on DVD Netflix. It's You might be able to purchase it for a reasonable price. I know there's like a German Blu-ray or something like that if you're one of those region-free people, um, which good for you, and I hope to join your ranks soon. Anyway, <laughs> I'm region free. Yeah, I know. It's kind of nice. I know. I need to. I need to. I also need to upgrade to 4K, which I haven't done yet either. Uh, I'm not rich. Yeah, neither of us are. So yeah, those are the movies we're gonna be talking about next week. I'm stoked. This is gonna be another fun one. Yeah, yeah, and I'm excited. I think I think so far we've we've had a lot of pretty fun episodes so far, and I'm hoping that everyone out there is digging it. Um, you know, yeah. tweet at us to let us know what you think. Uh, where can they find us to tweet at us is the question. Uh, the sh- you can find the show at uh, Movie Life Pod. You can find us there. Um, you can find us personally. I am at Michelle in Egan. And I'm at Brian D. Kuiper. And one thing, and this is our fifth episode. We haven't released anything. We don't really have a platform at this point of the recording yet. But if we do... Can you can you like and you know rate and review the the show? Now people ask that all the time. It's it's kind of weird to be asking that when um, yeah. we're not really out yet uh, when we're recording. But yeah, if you like us, tell us. We wanna we wanna hear from you guys. Absolutely, and you know we hope that this can be a fun and interactive kind of show, uh, at least on some level. And you know. Who knows? Maybe someday knows? we'll we'll have some of you on with us or something. I, That'd be fun. That would be so fun. I mean, maybe when we're done with our forever favorites, we can start bringing other people on to say, "Hey, what's one of your forever favorites?" Yeah, or something like that. You know, you know what? I would like to do that. You probably can't tell, but to some extent, we are still figuring things out. So, um, <laughs> we, including some of if the. It's- Including yeah. some of the sound issues. Uh, so if there's been some inconsistency in the yeah. sound, we're still working on that. That's mostly we my haven't, Yeah, fault. we haven't said anything about that. Yeah. Um, neither one of us has, like, uh, professional microphones, really, mm-hmm. to record this on. So if the audio is a little, little funky, we're working on it. It's going to get better. I promise. Yeah. Thank you for bearing with us so far, and we hope that yeah. uh, you continue to... Uh, to stick around and and we Enjoy look forward talking to talking about some movies with us, yeah. Yeah, we look forward to continuing to talk about movies with each other, and we hope that you'll join in with us. If, if nobody listens, whatever, we'll, we'll still have fun. Yeah, the two of us. It'll just be a a party of two. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. You know, 
Okay. All right, everybody. We will. You're not fine with that. I am like, fine with that. I, I am. Don't want to talk to her. No, I, 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 I think I'm the one who said it in the beginning. Was <laughs> even if no one listens to us, I just want to talk about movies with you because you're awesome, yeah. and it's been so awesome to uh, start getting to know you you're through awesome. this. Oh, we're we're, okay. We're getting sappy. So we're going to, we should probably sign up. We're friends. We can't be sappy with our friends. Yeah. But the show is, the show is almost as long as casino right now. Yeah. So So we should probably stop stop this recording (laughs) before it actually gets to two hours and 59 minutes. And we have, uh, we have less than a minute left. We have a minute left. Okay. Say goodbye. Okay. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Bye, guys.